0: Happy Halloween, ghouls and gamers. Welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and dismemberable video games. I'm your host, The Crypt Kiefer, <laughs> and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. I have a wonderful guest with me today. He is the head of Moonshot Network, of which I am a part, as well as the host of Moonshot Network shows such as Argonauts and the podcast Minds, there but for the grace of Pod Go We. It's Andrew Sherman. Andrew, how are you doing today?
1: Hey, doing great. Uh in October, it's actually And Boo Scareman. Uh if you're gonna be the, the <laughs> Keef Keeper or the yeah. Crypt Keeper Crypt keeper <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. I, I I love uh inscription and I'm very excited to talk about it.
0: I'm excited to talk about it with you too. This is a recent favorite of mine. Uh I have a lot to say about this. There's so much about this game that I love. But before we get into all of that, uh is it okay if I rant at you a little bit before I talk about video games actually?
1: absolutely hit hit me
0: i realize you know as the host of this show i can sort of do whatever i want within reason and that includes ranting about recent circumstances of my life uh (laughs) (laughs) since the recording of the last episode where i did phoenix Wright ace attorney with my buddy kev i let me let me let me let me me describe the situation to you okay this is this is a dramatic story uh since it's not about video games i'm just going to say random video game characters at random intervals so people who are here specifically for gaming are going to be able to be into this story yeah, Majora hit me. So uh, I talked about this multiple episodes ago at this point. One of my favorite musical artists is Jeff Rosenstock, Mario. And I was going to go and see him in concert uh, last month in September. And I was so excited for it. I talked about it as far back as the Tears of the Kingdom episode that I did that I was so excited to go and see this concert. Samus. I was going to go to Atlanta, which is four hour, a four hour drive from me to go see this artist. I had mm-hmm. a hotel booked. I had a car rented so I could drive out to see him solid snake. And in the week leading up to this, I decided I should isolate myself because this COVID-19 thing is getting really intense again. And I don't want anything to get in the way of this show that would make my entire year to go to. So Mm -hmm. I do. I isolate myself. And in that, during that stage of isolation, uh, the AC in my house goes out. So I, I don't want to leave my house and go do things in public, even though the heat is so intense. Solidus snake. Wednesday, and the show is on Friday night, mind you. I finally get AC back and I'm like, huh, I feel like I have a migraine and I feel nauseous, but I think that's just because I've been in the heat for like several days now. So I think that's why I'm not feeling good. Take a COVID test, uh, which I still have in my house, and it comes back negative. Great. So I just got to go through this heat exhaustion for a day. I can live with that. Naked snake. Next day, not feeling any better. Oh, no, I go to a minute clinic, get tested. Hey, buddy, you're positive. Not good. <laughs> Jesus, not the worst I'm possible so thing. Sorry, It's fine. Um, I have to cancel everything. It's a whole thing. They gave me Paxlovid, so it's not like I'm suffering while I have COVID. Thank mm-hmm. God. I'm fine now. I'm fine, everybody. If my voice has a little bit of a deeper tenor to it, then that's a, a bonus. If anything, don't get COVID-19 to be better at podcasts. That's not the point of all of this. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, take up smoking and uh, get COVID. That's the best ways to improve your voice.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are people who are like, you know, COVID deniers. I'm a COVID advocate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, two days after the show happens. Ganondorf. Jeff Rosenstock, the guy who I was so excited to see. also gets COVID-19. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. I was wondering what the timeline on that was. Yeah, no, I don't think he got COVID in Atlanta, uh, but he he had been touring for you know more than a week at that point, could have gotten it anywhere, because again, this thing is going around everywhere.
1: Venom snake.
0: Point is, there is a new vaccine out. Go and get that if you can. Please mask up whenever you go out in public, because this thing sucks. If you do come down with it, please see about getting Paxlovid, because it definitely mitigated my symptoms while i was having the covid hey hachi and Mm -hmm. it is supposed to assist in like long covid circumstances so you don't have to it apparently helps prevent long covid to some degree so Mm -hmm. miles edge protect yourself is the point
1: yeah i'm in a a good position where uh my work has recently instigated a like return to office full-on all of our offices got to come back in Uh, but I am lucky enough that I'm just full-on remote. Uh, There's no office near me, so Mm -hmm. uh, one of the few that actually gets to stay home, and somehow everyone at my company now has a cold that has all of the COVID symptoms, but everyone's failing their, or passing their COVID test. No, everyone's testing, and it says they don't have COVID, and it's all those cases where it's just like, I don't know, man. The numbers are all going up. I'm Betting that our at home tests are all just expired by this point, but it is wild seeing this like still have flare ups,
0: you know, three years in. Oh, yeah. No, it was definitely a crisis of like, well, Luigi, (laughs) the the other thing, like me being disappointed in myself for having caught it despite going out of my way not to get it. This Mm -hmm. being the second time I have caught it in uh, total since this pandemic has started. And also just a general existential crisis of like, we should have beaten this by now if we were remotely as Mm -hmm. a collective able to help mitigate the, the, this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, enough about COVID-19 and the the, the general existential malaise of being in a perpetual hellhole. <laughs> oh, by the way, Jeff Rosenstock, I think you and I have a lot in common. Uh, you got COVID-19. I got COVID-19. I like video games. I bought your recent album on vinyl, and uh, the inside cover has a lot of video game characters in that art. I think we could talk about video games. Open invitation. You don't listen to the show. but Open invitation. Jeff, come on the show. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff, come on. If you know Jeff Rosenstock, don't bother him. Don't bother him. But if if he could find a way to like (laughs) psychically communicate that he should be on my podcast in a polite way, that'd be great.
1: If we all think it really hard, it'll happen,
0: right? Yeah, like a spirit bomb, but like a polite, quiet one. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, Andrew, let's talk about you now. What do you Uh -uh. do? And what do you like? Yeah, so I, uh,
1: in my day to day life, I work in quality assurance uh, for a tech company. I don't like any of that. Uh, What I do and what I like is that I am a uh, podcaster and streamer and podcast network head. I still don't have like a good verb or a good noun for that, but uh, Mm -hmm. the head of a network. So I do. I do a couple different podcasts. I do one about alternate reality games, which ties into inscription. Uh, but then also I do a, a show about pitching podcast ideas to my friend and I, uh, g- former guest and Sonic superfan Riley Hopkins and I, <laughs> uh, we we pitch podcast ideas to each other. And one of these days we swear we're going to start one. But then I also I do a lot of streams. I play a lot of Pokemon uh, and I I like cards. Uh, I, I used to be a big Magic the Gathering player. Uh, I love the. That satisfying snap sound when you set a card down on the table and it just gets the corner just right. Uh, that's my favorite sound in the world. And I I love card games. So uh, Inscription is a game that I found and uh, heard was neat. And it ended up being so up my alley that I think it's possibly my favorite game of all time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you get uh, I'm glad that like something comes out that just like intersects with your interests so perfectly that you can't help but love it that those kinds of like pieces of media that feel made for you i i I totally get that feeling Mm -hmm. so let's talk about video games for a little bit before we get into the main event here as we know no community likes to gatekeep more than the gamers so we have (laughs) to check your gaming credentials here andrew you've talked about a couple of video games you love already but i need to know a little bit more what got Mm -hmm. you into this what is your relationship with it especially throughout the years so on and so forth what is andrew sherman's portrait of a gamer
1: I think my very first video game was Lemmings on the PC. Uh, On like, I don't know, Windows 3 or whatever. I don't know how <laughs> you go that far back. I don't remember exactly how Windows operating systems are named. 97 or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. But my dad installed a weird game about a bunch of little blue and green guys that you made do tasks to try to get from one end of the screen to the other. Uh, you tried to get as many in as you could, and I was enthralled. I, I remember just sitting for hours and playing it with my dad, and then for Christmas when I turned six, my parents got me Pokemon Red, and, which had just come out in a Game Boy Color, and uh, from then I was off to the races. That was uh, the end of my social life, I started playing video games. Uh, I got super into Pokemon. Uh, They also got me a a Mickey racing game, I think for Mm -hmm. the game boy color. And uh, ever since then growing up, I was always a, always a Nintendo kid and always a, a handheld kid. I loved my game boy, my game boy advance. I think the DS Lite is my favorite system of all time to the point that I've gotten into modding and taking them apart and putting them back together. And, to this day, now I, I stream them. Uh, I play them a lot. I am constantly on the edge of saying maybe I should start a video game podcast, but I don't need that to consume all of my time. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and plus, this is good territory that you got covered. Don't worry.
0: No, I don't. You can, please come on my territory over here. Like, I, I need help <laughs> doing this. I, I... I could talk about video games all day, but I have other things I need to do, like feed myself and my cats and go to work. <laughs> Join my Patreon so I don't have to go to work and so I can feed my cats off this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> yeah. I gotta figure out how to make money on this thing. It's simply too good.
0: Anyway, no, that's that's pretty thorough. You, you talked about, uh, you know, your... your love of handhelds and the ds specifically in the pokemon franchise what is your favorite pokemon entry i think
1: oh that's that's a question that is probably not as not worth as much thought as i'm trying to give it right now (laughs) i think that my my favorite entry the one that like when i think of pokemon i think heart gold is my favorite game in the series i think that there are some that have come out after that that are Better probably, but there's something about the animations in Heart Gold, the the sprite work. I love how alive the Gen 2 system feels, where you know different days different things happen. Where if you want to challenge Misty to a rematch, you gotta do it on a Tuesday. It's one of those things that like I don't think every game should be like that, and it is weird that I would not necessarily want a Pokemon on a live service model, mm-hmm. but they kinda did it. Back on the Game Boy Color, and then on the uh, on on the DS later. Uh, but I I love Pokemon Heart Gold. If you if you could just take that I don't know engine, take that version of the game, and just make that every generation, I'd be happy.
0: I love Heart Gold. I love Gen 2. Gen 2 was like, I, I was familiar with Pokemon at that point already, but I think Gen 2 was like the first, like Silver specifically was the first game I had played all the way through. And to this day, I'm still blown away at how a game that big and complex and refined was able to fit into a standard Game Boy cartridge. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle game. Do you know the, the story
1: about its development and how getting it to fit?
0: I th- was it Yakoi or was it somebody else who like stepped in in the middle of was it Iwata? Was it Iwata who like sort of I like I want to
1: say it was Iwata yeah a, a huge yeah. name looked at like the game that they were making and was just like let me take a swing at it and just compressed the game down to like half of the size that it was and they were just like oh we can fit Kanto back in here now holy cow yeah okay now
0: you can put Kanto in there and like fuck okay great <laughs> <laughs> man it is so nuts to me that they did like two regions and one Mm -hmm. was gen two and then they never really did it again
1: it's it's one of those things that like it is wild to me that they've never done it again but also i get it like it it Mm -hmm. is a lot to go back and do it especially as games get more complex and they have less and less time between releases I, I get why they didn't put Kanto in in scarlet and violet uh they barely put paldea in scarlet and violet so
0: <laughs> yeah no I like I am of the opinion that like they that the pixel and sprite work was the uh, the best version of uh that series mm-hmm. uh, I love gen 5 gen 3 gen 4 I, I you know I think diamond and pearl and platinum took a lot of big swings and I think there's some stuff in those games that are still like Uniquely amazing in those, like I really love the. I can't even remember the name of the watch that they did for the the second screen in that one,
2: or like the mm-hmm. underground
0: stuff there, and the ways that they were able to handle like the days of the week and the day night cycles in Gen Four. So it almost felt like Gen Two Part Two, to the point that Heart Gold yeah. and Soul Silver were the companion remakes for that.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Like I love so much of that, but like Gen Five and Gen Three are just so much of like how I perceive is like the height of that series, especially with like the way that like the dynamically moving Gen Five sprites were. Like, I I, I love how perfect that series was. And I'm a little sad that, like, the the game freak can't figure out that the the 3D stuff remotely, not remotely, but, like, quite as well.
1: Yeah. I I always feel I don't want to sound like one of those, like, the Dexit freaks, you know, the people that, like, got really mad at the texture on the trees and stuff. But it's also like, yeah, the texture on the trees doesn't look great, you know, like, (laughs) they got a little bit of a point (laughs) there. They're loud and obnoxious on Twitter about it, but they do have a bit of a point. And I, I don't know, it's, it's the old, the meme, I want shorter games with, you know, that take longer to make, and I'm not joking, you know, that whole thing. It's, that's how I feel about Pokemon, where it's like, I, I never want to sound like I'm talking about like lazy devs or that they're not putting care into the games, but I wish that like they could give those games the time that they need to be what they want them to be. Is really where it feels like things kind of fall apart for them as a company, mm-hmm. and I just it, and it's so weird being like you're directly owned by Nintendo. Yeah, it's so weird that this is I don't know.
0: It's it's a scalability thing because they've been mm-hmm. maintaining the consistency of releases, but not they haven't been able to keep up with the consistency of quality because, to your point earlier, it takes longer to make a video game mm-hmm. than it used to make than it used to take. And they have to take a lot of shortcuts. So like they just sort of have to like sort of cut their ambitions short or like split new ideas across different video games. Like I loved Legends Arceus, but I haven't mm-hmm. even gotten around to Scarlet and Violet because like I was so put off by like the the initial controversy of the performance issues. I can take a game that doesn't look great. I mean, a strong art direction would be preferable, but like if a game just performs poorly, if it just has poor performance, like I, I can't I can't handle it.
1: Well they just they just put out dlc for the game and i was like okay i'm sure they like we got a small region i'm sure that this locked it away and it's the same problems in that like are in this that are in the base game and it's like man i don't know what we're doing here (laughs) i know that when sword and shield started coming out and they said hey we're limiting the pokedex in this one because of a scalability and balance thing that makes total sense to me as someone who I, i don't know i i have a lot of experience in trading card games, specifically Magic the Gathering. And one of the things that they have uh, that really benefits them as a game is a rotating format shift where their newest standard sets are all just like, hey, we're playing with just the newest releases, and after a set time, some of them drop off, new ones get added in. And then they have older and older formats, and those older and older formats are all just kind of defined by design mistakes of the past in a way that standard gets to be free of mm-hmm. i feel like pokemon's kind of the same way where it's like well how do we design a competitive environment that doesn't just bend to garchomp again or <laughs> tyranitar again you know we've got all these things from the past how do we make the new things shine it makes sense to move forward and have limiting things to make it feel fresh and new but i feel for people who work at and at, at who work at game freak or at the nintendo comp or the the pokemon company i the Pokemon Company, yeah. Yeah, the Pokemon com- I, I, It's such a weird ownership that I'm not entirely sure which studio I'm talking about, but I mm-hmm. feel for the people that work there having to balance
0: what, 30 years of Pokemon? Did they just hit a 30 year? Uh, so it started in 96 in Japan, right? So I think they're getting really close to 30, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the Nintendo DS is maybe your favorite console ever. We talked at length about the DS in our previous episode with uh, Phoenix Wright. What were some of your favorite DS games? Phoenix Wright was a a game that was in my system uh,
1: a very long time, and I think it's probably the cartridge that's in the one right behind me as well. Um, (laughs) I've been replaying uh, Trials and Tribulations, the third one of those games, uh, pretty recently. Um, But also uh, all the Pokemon games. I really liked visual novels like Hotel Dusk. Uh, That one I really enjoyed playing. But yeah, a lot of RPGs. The Chrono Trigger remake, Pokemon as a whole every Final Fantasy that I could and then that came out on the Game Boy Advance as well, I just loved having a console that I could have in my pocket when I wanted to or easily stashed under a pillow when I heard my mom coming as I was going to bed, you know? Way too many hours spent up late at night playing Phoenix Wright, trying to whisper objection into a microphone without waking anyone else in my house up.
0: (laughs) No, I I mentioned this in the last episode too, I think it's a super underrated RPG console that got me into rpgs beyond pokemon like uh, the final fantasy franchise i played the four remake on the ds for, and that was my first final fantasy game ever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my first dragon quest game was nine which was on the ds like uh and i also played dragon quest monsters joker which again hard to believe is a real game but it, it is like somewhere <laughs> between like the the like hey here's like shin megami tensei and pokemon and also it's dragon quest And i'm like what <laughs> what's it's shin megami tensei Batman's man's
1: worst stage worst adversary
0: yeah but i just i I got it because i thought the graphics were really good for a ds but also like Mm -hmm. it was it was pretty fun but yeah it's just a super underrated rpg machine i have so much love for that that console and i'm glad i get to talk about it two episodes in a row (laughs)
1: it's also it's uh one of the things that i think is a little i don't know underrated about it um it's also really fun to take apart and put back together is something that i learned over covid i i got one and then I had battery issues with it. And then I just ordered a replacement part and got into, and then I was like, well, you know, what if I could modify this? You can add other screens. You can do this for that to it. I've gotten into like DS restoration, uh, more or less over, over COVID. And then, uh, not so much recently, but I, it's a lot of fun to take plates and swap it out. And it's cool how much of a hobby and, and like a ecosystem has developed around that people, making new faceplates, making new parts for it and i don't know i think that one of the things we talk about a lot is like uh making sure that games from the past can still be played and it is cool how resilient the hardware is for the nintendo ds in a way that we don't often see in a lot of newer consoles that system is decades old at this point but you can still find replacement batteries and also just it's still they still run like a dream which is so fun
0: <laughs> yeah no like the the nintendo's like hardware resilience really ruined my expectation of hardware for everything else as an adult i mean like there's just like a general everything has gotten shittier lately but like when you grow up carrying around like a game boy and then the game boy advance and the sp and the ds and like you drop these things on concrete and they're still like i'm good and then like mm-hmm. you get your like first cell phone or like the first like t- uh touch phone that you've ever had and you drop it and it's like oh that's broken okay
1: yeah and it costs you know three times as much for a, the worst phone you can get nowadays compared to a a ds at the height of its popularity you know
0: the lesson is to bring back clamshell design <laughs> yeah exactly 100% well
1: they should do it but they need to use those the hinges that that the ds
0: has cuz those things you know you could build planes out of that <laughs> yeah no it very very sturdy system what appeals to you about modding? Like you you've described like the things that you do to it, and I've heard people mod like their Game Boys and their DSs on multiple podcasts now. What about it speaks to you?
1: It is a fun bit of self-expression. I'm not a I'm not a very artsy guy. Uh my 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 art comes in the form of podcasts and streaming. So uh that that active like I don't know. Sit down and do something that is just myself and for myself is not something I typically do on a uh, on a on a art level. So it's a it's a neat form of kind of self expression, self kind of a self puzzle. You get to look at one of the, one of the things that I got really into was going on eBay and buying broken DSs. A lot of people will sell them for like ten to fifteen bucks. They sell super cheap, and all of them say you know bust it doesn't work you get it home you look at it and you say well what about it doesn't work uh and nine times out of ten it's one specific cable inside of the uh inside of the ds body because it only works if the wi-fi chip is enabled in a weird way so if you can re-enable that nine times out of ten they get fixed or a screen connector is a little wonky so to me there's like two ends of it one of which is I can take a DS and make it any color that I want. I can, I can do some kind of ex- self-expression here. I, I really enjoyed, I put together two DSs out of, you know, teal, white, and pink DSs and was able to make two basically trans DSs that we were able to auction off at a charity event a couple years ago. Um, and that, that was really fun and satisfying to me just knowing that like, Hey, here's a way that people can express themselves through a DS that I've made that also helps raise money for charity. But also through that, you can just say, hey, what can we put together with these parts? These are, these are all DSs that don't work anymore for one person, but out of that, I can make a DS that does. And if I'm really lucky, I can take three and turn it into two that do. There's a, you know, recycling of a DS feels really good to me because it is just keeping the shelf life of something alive long after people expected it not to be, even though it was just probably just a toy for a child. The other thing that 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 appeals to me, and this is a, a side thing that I've, one of those never, you know, tips aren't expected, but are appreciated things. When people sell DSs, they'll just say, yeah, and they throw in whatever they have laying around. So it's kind of a fun way to get to know someone when they, they send you a DS in the mail that doesn't work and you look at it and you're just like, huh, this person has three games. They've got Texas Hold'em, the iCarly video game, mm-hmm. and, you know, one other, one other, uh, um, Nintendo's or something, you know, and you're just like, okay, I kind of get a vision of who this person was, or a very strange vision of who they are with these three games. But I don't know. You 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 find out about the owners through things just like, oh, this person's definitely a smoker. Um, <laughs> there's, I don't know. It's 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 a neat little view into the previous owner of a system that you then get to take home and kind of, you know, clean and appreciate and take care of in a way that. I never thought to do myself when I was a kid and get to kind of restore something that uh, I, I, you know, I get to restore something that I've, I've loved and want to pass that on to other people. So uh, I think that there's, there's a lot that I get out of it, but it's much more in the mechanical sense of things, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, like you, you described, you, you said a lot of beautiful things in there. I really like uh, the concept of like taking like, you know, we were, you sort of like give, A life to an inanimate object what you're doing is like you're receiving you know something that was loved in a certain way and you are continuing its potential to be loved for the foreseeable future you're giving new life to something i think that's that's deeply beautiful especially like you to your point earlier about uh preservation as a general concept uh being able to continue to use consoles that were planned on some level for obsolescence I think that's that's very touching and very cool. Uh, and people who are listening to this are probably going to want to get into this hobby themselves based on how you described it. One thing that you pointed out was how it's relatively inexpensive to buy broken DSs online. Uh, what else, in terms of equipment or knowledge, would you recommend to somebody so they could get into this hobby?
1: So there is a website called iFixit that has a lot of really good uh, teardown guides and um for just about any electronic you can think of they they are very strong believers in right to repair and trying to make sure that you're like able to get in and fix the things you want to fix they sell a big screwdriver kit that has you know a a screwdriver handle and then a bunch of little heads that go into it that includes you know a a Phillips head of a bunch of sizes a flat head of every size but then also like here's the little uh the six-sided star pin that goes in that a lot of laptops use we got one of those here's a triangle pin that is like microsoft's proprietary screw that goes in a bunch of uh screw heads that are kind of proprietary to different companies and different uh you know there's specific heads for iphones for androids things like that i i really enjoy that i got it as a christmas gift from uh my dad one year because my dad doesn't get me in a lot of different ways, but telling him, hey, I'd like a fancy screwdriver, that's right up his alley as a, mm-hmm. as a Christmas gift. And, that, and it's been a gift that keeps on giving. I can take apart different video game consoles. I was able to replace a battery on my wife's laptop, things like that. There are a lot of companies that don't want you to get into the things that you have. And having a tool that gives you access to them is very powerful and gives you back a lot of it, it gives you back a lot of power. And a lot of say over the things that you have in your
0: life in a way that I really recommend. Sounds like something that people who don't even want to repair DSs specifically should buy just so they can, uh, you know, your right to repair thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) earlier. Anything else that they would possibly need, like any resources that they should read up on or any other tools like a solder or something that they may need?
1: If you want to get into the like the harder stuff, a solder is going to be absolutely necessary. I have not, I have not, I don't have a soldering kit. I haven't gotten that deep into things. I'm much more on the replace shells, replace buttons, things like that. And Mm -hmm. DS specifically, that's very easy for, but there are some, some deeper things. And if you want to do things, you can replace them and add a USB, you know, add a USB-C charger for your battery for your DS. It's one of the biggest, most annoying things is that they've all got proprietary chargers on each different generation of a handheld, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You want to just do a USB C? You can replace that. You want a bigger, brighter screen? You can do that. Those are going to take something like a soldering kit. I'm much more on a a. Hey, this is a DS, just as it was back in you know 2007 or whatever. It's a little annoying that I have to buy a new charger every once in a while because I keep losing them. But yeah, there's something a little more holistic into that, and it's mostly that I don't have to buy a soldering kit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, and there are a bunch of a bunch of guides online. I'm sure I went through it to get uh, some of the stuff. A lot of YouTube videos, if you Google what device you're trying to take apart or put back together, someone has done it and someone has recorded it and put it up there. I, I, I'm not one of those people that says you can learn anything through Wikipedia, YouTube, and online guides, but replacing DS parts, you certainly can.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, I've been on the Googling things and then adding the word Reddit at the end of thing kick lately because Mm -hmm, Google's basically useless (laughs) now. But if you look up an enthusiast website, you're going to find a lot of opinions and second opinions, which is the (laughs) the other important part of any guide is another person offering feedback, uh, something that's been lost to the homogenization of the Internet. (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm. what's well, the you know what's the old the old github trick is that you if you post your code up there and then say like this is work. this isn't working how do i fix it and use your second account to post a wrong answer uh that way other people go actually this is how you do it that's the best <laughs> way to do it you always want to get that second opinion that's the one that's right
0: all right uh good to know uh you know we've we've talked about the ds and uh ruminate on that enough i think what have you been playing lately
1: Lately, I I got bit by the Baldur's Gate bug. I uh thought that I was gonna resist it for a long time, but I I have over a hundred hours put into it. Uh I I turned it off to go play to go do this recording right now. <laughs> um that has been my the biggest thing I've been doing for quite a while. Beyond that, I I really want to get into Liza P. I really want to get into Armored Core. They've just came out while I've been playing Baldur's Gate. So I I yeah i'm in the middle of all that <laughs> yeah i feel a little boring i feel boring when the answer to what's what are you been playing is oh the big release from two months ago i'm still doing that
0: one there was like two months straight where the answer was like zelda and i'm like yeah me too <laughs> it was like uh, like 20 minutes of every episode I'm like is it zelda so good <laughs> um, i'm waiting for a visit phys- i don't know if it's out yet i was i had covid for a minute there so i don't know how much the world changed back then Uh, But I was waiting for a physical release of Baldur's Gate uh, on the PlayStation 5 before I bit the bullet on that, because I think it released initially digitally. Yeah, I know they've got a
1: digital release for the PC and the PS5. I don't know if they're, are they
0: doing a physical release? They need to do a physical one, man. We have to keep, we have to learn this lesson. We need to learn this lesson, man. A quick Google says
1: before the end of 2023, but I don't know for sure. I I will say now that I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of Alan Wake two is not getting a physical release. That one is getting full digital, if I remember right. So that's
0: that's where my brain went. I don't know why. My heart breaks for that because I'm frustrated by that, but I also understand that Remedy is not a triple A studio. They're like a more double A mid-budget thing. And it's just Mm -hmm. becoming about scalability uh to go to that conversation earlier in terms of like what you can do as a developer with only so many resources. We'll touch on this when we talk about an indie game in just a few minutes here. Uh Uh-huh. Physical releases are becoming a privilege or you know it's very privileged in terms of like you know you're a corporation like sony or nintendo and microsoft you're like yeah yeah i'll I'll put some plastic out in the world but not everybody has Mm -hmm. that not everybody has that advantage
1: i don't know it's odd it feels like things have gone on a u-curve because i know that cartridge releases back on you know the nes the super nintendo handhelds like the ds those were expensive to do to Mm -hmm. say hey you know you are we are releasing on a, a physical cartridge going out and then they swapped to cds and those were super cheap yeah and that kind of paved the way for a lot of other physical releases and it's been kind of interesting as we get into um blu-ray discs as well as just international shipping methods and international companies for distribution more than just kind of more localized releases uh i don't know it's kind of interesting how it seems like the pendulum swinging back the other way as the internet exists as a distribution platform people can just say you know it's cheaper than a
0: disc is no disc so yeah yeah now we're going back to just
1: it's too expensive to even release it physically.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely been interesting and obviously like size is becoming like the big the determiner mm-hmm. of all that like cuz now space is kind of like storage is now like sort of becoming like the big commodity with all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can I'm not as technologically educated as a son of a computer engineer should be, but yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's I uh I uh, recently I moved and in doing that I had to lose my really good unlimited internet and go back to a capped internet and it has completely changed the way that I think about buying and doing video games. Before it was just like, oh yeah, let's buy get this on Steam, download it instantly, good to go. And now I have to sit and think like, oh, my budget, you know, my the the internet that I'm allowed to access in a month is smaller than Baldur's Gate 3. So I guess I'm just going to bite a bullet and pay an overage fee if I want to download a big game, but like It is wild that we've gotten to a point where like those huge releases mean that where these problems hit a confluence where it's just like, oh, it's ballooned game sizes, but also like hits where people can't download something like that. I went out to a GameStop and I bought Final Fantasy 16, the most recent one. Yes, I I bought the physical disc of that because I didn't want to download a hundred and something gigabyte game. And then I got home with it, put it into my PlayStation and said, well, we got to download 40 gigs. And I was like, well, all right. I don't know what we're doing here then. (laughs) Guess I won't listen
0: to music this month.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Spotify's out.
0: (laughs) Isn't, God, I mean, like you're talking about another thing entirely where I want to bang my head against the wall or like do redacted, redacted, redacted to a lot of industries, Mm -hmm. which is just. Everything is now like a money paywall. You got to pay for your internet. You got to pay for your phone. You got to pay to use the monthly subscription services on your video games. You got to buy the video games and then also pay for the subscription service within the video game. I want to find some people and show them a hammer very up close because it's like, (laughs) this is, this is, this is too much, man. I can't give me a break. I have one job.
1: Yeah. The economy. Cheers. (laughs) All right. <laughs> mm. I, I feel like it's it's like the problems in my life aren't big things. It's just nickeling and diming yeah. of everything. The way that I flew recently and it was like, oh, well, you know, hey, you're flying Delta. You, as you as you buy a ticket, you can pick a seat. Now, there's four different flight pits you can choose because we've decided that these chairs are slightly more comfortable. So they're going to cost more if you want to do it. You can pick a seat, but if someone pays more, their picking a seat matters more than you. But you can change your seat once it's been established, but it might cost you to do that. And it's, it's wild how so many little pain points that used to just be just customer service, just retail. You know, it just used to be you buy a plane ticket and you're good to go. And now it's we've realized that we can make everything cost $5 to go away. So if you want these problems to go away, it just costs you a little bit extra. And so much is just a little bit extra that'll get you.
0: I think another thing I was like, you know, I don't sleep at night. And when I don't sleep at night, I go into really like, God, we need to fix everything. Like how everything on the internet is just a various form of an ad. Now, even if you're not directly mm-hmm. like looking at an advertisement, which takes up like 75% of basically any screen. Now you're basically like seeing content being marketed towards you within a thing that you're watching or whatever and that's why you need to buy Squarespace or whatever you know
1: (laughs) yeah everything feels like it's become just such an attention economy where Mm -hmm. it's like I mean this was always kind of true about TV shows where it was just like if you want I Love Lucy to exist you gotta buy Clorox soap or whatever but like it just feels like so much nowadays is just you know if you want this to exist and if you want this to exist in a way that like actually matters and gets out in front of people um, how is it going to pad someone else's bottom line cuz it can't be you as a creator it's got to be someone else gets the payday from making this a thing
0: yeah it's just like now we're at the point of the internet where uh the the content is now being replaced by ads so anytime you look up where can i find this item in baldur's gate 3 you get like a robot telling you like baldur's gate 3 is newest game released by developer and publisher now <laughs> and then you just get like a wall of text it's like the way that people complain about recipes uh, because, like, I never complained about recipes mm-hmm, having, like, the mm-hmm. giant, like, wall of text explaining, like, the, their family's, like, family tree before you get to, like, two eggs and sugar. Right. Because I knew, like, the way that the economy worked at that time was, like, the time you spent on a page, the number of times you click on a web page is how that person is getting their, you know, bag. But with this now, like, a robot is talking to me about some stuff it found from a person who wrote something on, like, a different site. And now it's, like, writing that from and then another bot is looking at the bot written guide written by another bot that was written by a person. And now you're like four degrees removed from like a human being to like figure out where, uh, you know, something is in tears of the kingdom. I feel like we are in the, the hell, you know,
1: it's, it's so weird that when I was a kid looking up how to fig like how to continue playing Phoenix, right? Cause I couldn't figure out what I had to present to make the parrot talk. You know, it is so weird that, I used to go to game facts and that was just like a free site that people just wrote guides for. And now game guides are the bedrock of the game writing industry that is slowly being eroded by AI, just glomming onto things that other people wrote hot take games. Writing is in a weird place and I don't (laughs) know how sustainable it Yeah, is. I'm sure I'm the first to say that you heard it here first, but I don't know. It is such a, I don't know, an odd nickel and dime attention landscape. I don't know what it is, and it scares me.
0: (laughs) Anyway, yeah. All this to come back to say, like, when I was 15 years old and found out that they sold more airplane tickets than they had seats, I was like, we got to fix this, and it's only gotten worse. (laughs) (laughs) We got to pack this up. This isn't working. (laughs) Yeah, hey,
1: uh, shout out, just as a quick note to everyone out there. The they are authorized to pay you 400% worth of your uh, plane ticket. So if, ever, if they ever want to bump you off a flight, hold, just mm-hmm. hold, make them rack up that number before you decide to do it. They'll pay you a thousand dollars to get off your flight.
0: Yeah. And while we're talking about real life cheat codes, or in other words, laws, uh, you mm. know, if you cannot afford to get your vaccination or you're not getting vaccinated because you don't think you can afford it, the CDC, the, there's this thing on the CDC that you can get a vaccination for free. There's options. Yes. They don't advertise them because fuck big pharma, but you know, you can, get, you can get vaccinated for free. You can get 400% of your ticket back. You're, you, you don't have to be a victim, even though like every single part of the world is trying to make you a victim.
1: There are websites that exist that you can sign up to be part of class action lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I went to college. You yeah, can sign up
1: for it, even if you haven't bought the orange juice that went bad or whatever. Just, as a, just throwing that out there. You can sign up for whatever you want. <laughs>
0: Thanks, The Rot. <laughs> you talked about. <laughs> anyway, speaking of uh,
1: using broken, degenerate strategies to get through stuff, uh, no, what's up?
0: Uh, yeah, no. Uh, Ro- Shopler from Kroger, it's fine. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I don't edit this out, I'm sorry. Uh, I, you, you can't arrest me because I'm <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, you're a card game player. You, you I talked about Magic the Gathering earlier. Uh, what are your favorite card games to play very quickly?
1: I am a little I'm a little out of practice. Uh, I, I am a kind of a former card game player uh, at the moment, but I was very deep into Magic the Gathering. I, I love Magic and could talk about it for hours. I think it's one of the best games ever designed. And I made my own card sets. I've uh, I, I love the game. I love everything about it, except for the <laughs> I love everything about it except the company that runs it. Uh, as, as fun as that is ain't that just the way ain't it just the way beyond that uh i love deck builders i love uh both online things like slay the spire or i guess you know on digital not online but you know what i mean card games like slay the spire i really like uh but also physically uh my wife and i really like uh there's a a dc uh universe themed deck building uh, set of card games that are really good uh if you want just a a fun easy to pick up and play deck builder uh in physical space that's a good one to go to uh and we've also weirdly enough been getting into the the digimon trading card game mm. um they they did a remake of it in 2020 and actually put game design behind it uh which is really cool and and doesn't really line up with how the old card game was but it's a fun I don't know. There's something that comes a lot easier to me when you look at a card game and you just say, like, this is Gabumon. I know who Gabumon is. I can I can kind of figure out what his card does based off of knowing the guy. But yeah, those are the those are the games I've been into recently. I keep trying to get into the Pokemon trading card game, but it
0: just never quite excites me. Uh they just put the Game Boy color version of the game on the Nintendo Switch online, which I hear is like a great onboarding thing for it.
1: Yeah, well the Pokemon is such a weird thing because the card game, as it is, like, tutorialized to you, is so much different from the card game as it is played in a competitive environment. Mm -hmm. Because as it's described, it's just like, yeah, you play your Charmander, then you get to evolve it to a Charmeleon and attach your energies to it. Then you use Scratch. And in, like, going to play the Pokemon card game, it's just like... I play Tyranitar EX, play this trainer, I get to pitch my entire hands, draw seven cards, I play these two item cards, attach them up, use this activated ability to attach three energy to the Tyranitar, deal 280 damage, Past turn, go. It's so, if if you have a Magic the Gathering background, Pokemon feels like old school vintage, uh, which is the oldest format in Magic. Kind of combo heavy and tempo heavy uh, in a way that like, I personally am not super into in card games, but it is wild seeing how competitive level Pokemon plays out compared to like the Pokemon trading card game video game where it's like, oh, man, my executes going to evolve next turn. Super excited. (laughs) Attach an energy.
0: Flip a coin for sleep powder. I just learned something today and I feel like I. You know, like I, I just learned about a new art form. That's what you just told me about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like learning a new genre of music exists.
1: <laughs> that being said, the, the video game version of it is the kind of game that I love to play. So that is I'm 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 excited to go back and replay that one. I played I played the trading card game, Game Boy Advance or Game Boy Color game a whole lot. There's apparently a sequel to it that never got released in America, but they've done a fan translated patch for it. Oh. that adds like a couple sets beyond where that game came out and i've been meaning to get my hands on that and play it but i just haven't too much baldur's gate i haven't gotten around to it yeah
0: <laughs> uh i get it um Oh is my poison growing up uh, i'm mm-hmm. sorry everybody if you had any respect for me i'm sorry that it just instantly disappeared but you don't get to. yeah i gotta go this has
1: <laughs> been fun check out uh no i uh i used to um beyond just playing magic i used to be a judge at a local uh, card shop where I would host events. And part of that was running events for Yu-Gi-Oh! where I could run all of the like tournament software and manage pairings and things like that. Anytime a player came up to me and was like, can you tell me how this effect works? I was like, oh, let me get my little binoculars to read the cards and I can maybe (laughs) figure something out. But I have
0: no idea. I don't go here. Yeah, there's definitely like a "please excuse my dear aunt Sally" order of operations to Yu-Gi-Oh that doesn't quite in, into it with uh with <laughs> casuals. Um, and I I genuinely feel sorry for people who did a good in in like the original series when like there was like only fusions and now like and then like once they had synchro summons, I was like, I'm out. I'm 14. I'm out. I'm good. I'm good. This is this is becoming a lot like books. I don't know if I want to play this anymore. <laughs> So what about video games about card games or video games featuring card games? Any of those you enjoy?
1: I like a good deck builder. I haven't gotten super into many in a long time. Uh, I've wanted to check out Marvel's uh, The Midnight Suns game. I heard that was incredible as a half tactics, half deck builder style. It was not the XCOM game that people thought it was when it was being advertised. And I hear it was really cool, but never, never really checked it out. I don't typically get super into card video games outside of. I will do deep dives into, you know, Slay the Spire or Monster Train or uh, different, you know, roguelike deck builders as they come up. But I tend to keep my card playing habits to, to paper. I love, like I was saying before, that snap of the paper against the table. I, uh, when I played competitively, you could tell which deck was mine because it was slightly bent up to the right. Because of the way that I laid down my cards, I love the tactile feel of drawing cards and shuffling them and holding them in your hand. You'd think I'd be more into like card tricks and poker, but I—I I don't know. Something like, you gotta have a dragon on the card, I guess, is more where it gets to. But I—I uh, I typically I tend to keep it in the paper space, which is what made Inscription such a weird, a weird standout for me.
0: Yeah. No. I'm very interested in this. We'll get into this when we talk about inscription. But I love card games. I love actual like 52 card t- style card games. I played mm-hmm. a lot of Crazy Eights, a lot of uh, Texas Hold'em, Black. I learned these games at a very young age because my dad came from Louisiana where gambling was legal. So I learned a lot of like card games <laughs> at a very young age, Rummy, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, but so I just have a huge affection for standard non deck building card games. I I, I love them mm-hmm. and. I've talked about my love of card games in RPGs in multiple episodes now. I love games like Gwent and The Witcher. I mm-hmm. love Triple Triad and Final Fantasy VIII. Pazak and Knights of the Old Republic is just Space 21. Uh, <laughs> if there is a card game shaped diversion in your video game, I will lose multiple hours of my life playing it against a robot who does not give me any material reward for playing against them. I love it so much. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, I played so many card games. Uh, dominoes is one of my favorite like table games to play in real life and mm-hmm. i would say like a quarter of my play time in red dead redemption 2 was just playing dominoes against the computer <laughs> and uh oh when i was a kid they uh you 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 know you played the ds you remember how like new super mario brothers and all those ds era mario games had those mm-hmm. uh, mini games you could play uh multiplayer yeah. with uh those casino style games i played a lot of i spent a lot of time playing that in the car uh as a kid so like card games digital card games i was just surrounded by all the time they should bring that
1: back they should bring back just adding mini games to games that you can just play multiplayer with your friends
0: yeah i miss i miss that like i don't want it to be relegated to 51 clubhouse games i want your full release mario <laughs> <laughs> video game to just have a bunch of weird video games on the side
1: yeah i want texas hold'em in the mario game yeah,
0: give a, give your child a gambling addiction. <laughs> <laughs> used to have they used to have slot machines in Pokemon. In
1: Pokemon, yeah. Now yeah, we have sure to Grandpa
0: let's take you a bed. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you, I had more than six Yu Gi Oh video games in my house as a kid. I had to pull up the Wikipedia list of released video games in the Yu Gi Oh franchise because mm-hmm. I got tired of writing them down. A lot of them are so like small potatoes that they don't even have their own Wikipedia page, and yet I own them. I bought them. <laughs> they came with three cards if you bought if you bought a game new, a Yu-Gi-Oh game new, you would get three cards in that box. Mm-hmm. And man, I love those cards. eames the Infinity, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> I liked uh the the Magnet Soldiers that I got with uh was it Eternal Duelist Soul? Is that the name of the
0: one of them on the game boy advance yes it's one of the it's the one i had on the game boy advance and i think that's how i, I got them
1: i played a lot of that one uh i tried to play some of the other more rpg ish Yu Gi Oh games but they were always like you start off with a deck full of monsters with 400 power i was like I'm, i'm not about this i gotta i gotta play the real thing i gotta come on
0: oh yeah they have like so many rule variations with like the same cards and i'm like what the Fuck is this? Because, like, you, you, you would buy a Yu Gi Oh game because you were like eight and you're like, Yu Gi Oh, I know how to play Yu Gi Oh. No, you don't. What the hell is this? The first Duelist of the Roses on the PlayStation 2 that has Yu Gi Oh cards in it. That's not how you play <laughs> Yu Gi Oh, though. And it's also based on the real life War of the Roses and it just doesn't even have Yu Gi Oh characters in it. It's just Yu Gi Oh characters, character models mapped onto major forces during <laughs> War of the Roses.
1: Incredible there was a GameCube game called the false bound kingdom. That was like a weird RPG that I rented when I was seven and did not understand the mechanics of. Yeah. It was like a weird, like half RPG, half real time strategy, uh, moving guys across a field. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think
0: that's what, uh, um, Duelist of the roses was like too. Yeah. Except it was the, the okay. house of Lancaster versus the house of York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You saying this I also I played a bunch of uh dungeon dice monsters, the uh the spin off from a, a two part episode that they did once. Uh, mm-hmm. I played a lot of that uh video game, which was uh bad, but I put a lot of hours into it. Played a lot of pumpkins,
0: yeah. There was a top down, like you were talking about, top down RPG on the Game Boy Advance. Uh, there was the Sacred Cards, which was based off of I think uh, the Duelist Kingdom arc and or like uh, the, the, the duel, okay. Battle City an arc in Yu-Gi-Oh anime. And then there was also Reshef of Destruction, which was like a non-canon thing. And the mechanics in that game were nothing like Yu-Gi-Oh except like you played monsters, but there was also like an elemental rule to it. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Why is this so hard? I'm nine. <laughs> 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 like I had to keep going back to playing uh, Eternal Duelist Soul because that was just regular Yu-Gi-Oh even though it had no arc. It was just like, who do you want to fight against? I was like, I f- I fucking fight Joey again I don't know like I need a, I need a normal mm-hmm. Yu-Gi-Oh RPG that's just the game Yu-Gi-Oh GX Dual Academy which was like basically a high school AU where you got to pl- hang out with the members of mm. Yu-Gi-Oh GX and go to Dual Academy and like had a weekly you you, <laughs> you like fought certain you took exams and like month-to-month things happened and like you followed a set schedule but <laughs> it was like part visual novel part school simulator part Yu-Gi-Oh I had a lot of fun with that one, actually.
1: Honestly, I would fuck with Yu-Gi-Oh!
0: Persona. That sounds incredible. It kind of is. Like, if you just, if, like, understanding, like, it's, you do not walk around or anything, it's just you, like, Mm -hmm. pressing A to go to a location, like, go to class, and then you sit in class, and then it's, like, that Persona style or visual novel style, like, here is the teacher talking to you. You must now duel somebody now for your life.
1: (laughs) I played Persona 3 on the, on the the PSP I think that I could handle that
0: yeah yeah so I played a lot of those games on the Game Boy Advance and then again there was a War of the Roses PlayStation 2 mm-hmm. video game that I played a bunch of and then there was this one that wasn't even Yu-Gi-Oh it was called Capsule Monsters Coliseum which they had an OVA of that aired once on four kids TV to, so you couldn't really glean the mechanics of it and for some reason I had it on PS2 and played the hell out of it
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh Anyway, this is a Halloween-themed episode, kind of. Uh, we we're talking about a lot of scary things, like the rot of capitalism and uh, mm-hmm. card game hygiene. Uh, <laughs> we're also in fall mode. Uh, are there any games that you enjoy that you would recommend people play around the Halloween season, or just in the fall season that give you that sort of autumnal vibe?
1: Yeah, I'm much more autumnal than I am horror. I I don't typically play a lot of horror games, which is why I'm so, I was surprised. It was my biggest hesitation going into Inscription the first time I played, but. I, I do like autumn. It's one of my favorite seasons. Uh, top four, definitely. Um, <laughs> the the when you said what's your like fall game? The first one that came to mind was Night in the Woods. It it has that kind of like fall feel to it. I think it takes place in the fall, but it definitely has that vibe to it of just like f- I don't know. Fall is always such a weird time because like kids go back to school, and it seems like there's a lot of people that are having something new start again. But, as an adult, you kind of don't because it's just another day. That's something that, like, has been kind of weird to me as I grow up. we We live in front of a school now, so you're kind of like, "Oh, the kids are back. I can hear them at recess. god, i I has three months really passed. I don't I didn't i they were just on summer break a little bit ago. Night in the woods kind of has that feel to it to me of like playing as May and seeing as she deals with like life around her keeps going on, but she is stuck after dropping out of school and figuring out where to go next and reconnecting with old friends and doing a good story from there i don't, I don't want to get too deep into it because it's a really great game to go into and have the story reveal itself to you but that's one that i would definitely recommend if you want something that isn't scary scary for a nice you know fall play that's the one that i would immediately go to
0: no it's a good it's a good pick and i agree it is. It's a game that I love dearly, and I think everybody should play it. I do think, as like a fall tradition, it should it should be on a lot of people's list, just like uh, Over the Garden Wall is, or When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for film people out there. It, it it's definitely a a, a good <laughs> shot for that. Uh, I'm playing Psychonauts for the first time uh, right now. Oh yeah, because yeah, my friend has a PlayStation 2, and he was just like, "Yeah, play play whatever you want," while I go do something else over here. And I'm like, "Oh, i never played Psychonauts. Let me throw that on." loving it and it's a game that takes place at like a summer camp technically so it's weird to call it a fall game but seeing it's like it's a bunch of trees and this the the summer camp that they're at seems to be very school-esque i'm going to say that it is a fall game to me so there you can't fight me
1: for me it's a fall game because i'm very bad at platformers (laughs) yeah oh yeah
0: yeah yeah ah yeah 2005 (laughs) camera great Yeah, I was like, I'm loving it, but man, there are like some platforming segments in like the early uh tutorial hours that are like, fuck me, this is two thousand and five, all right. It was like the same thing when I went back and replayed Jack 2. I was like, how did I do this?
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: but still great game. How, great game.
1: Uh, how how far into the game are you?
0: I just got to the uh Godzilla, uh the, the the kaiju section of the game, and I'm I think it's a great level.
1: Okay. I love that level. I think that you are right before one of my favorite levels, so I won't say anything more on it.
0: Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about because I've seen so many videos about like this level is one of the best levels in video games.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in for a good time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited. Um, before we talk about the main event, the game that you picked, Andrew, are there any other games that are meaningful or impactful to you that you want to shout out before we move forward? I think that we kind of hit them all. <laughs> I think great. We
1: we've tracked my history of gaming pretty well. I think those are the ones that all really stand out to me. Other than like dungeons and dragons and tabletop role-playing games are the other thing that have shaped how I approach games as a whole. Playing D&D, I was always in the like the, the forever DM role, as they call it, where uh, anytime, you know, you can get people together, but no one wants to be the DM. I do. I, I want to lead a campaign. I want to I take your characters and, and and do bad and good things to them. That mentality and being a person that is planning a lot of things behind the scenes to let things play out in a way that feels natural, I think, is something that has led me to be the person that I am today and how I like to approach, like, I don't know, my day-to-day life of, like, let's, let's sit back for a minute and figure out what we're doing first. I'm a very hesitant person and very slow to jump into things, and I think that that is a game that has shaped me as a person more than I've let myself shape it.
0: Hmm, I, I get that. When you do have the opportunity to play uh, Dungeons & Dragons in the more traditional role, do you ever find yourself uh, sort of almost backseat DMing or like, do you think the experience of being like a normal player has been ruined for you by your years of experience being a DM?
1: I, I do my best not to backseat DM just because right. I know that I wouldn't want someone to do it to me, so I like try really hard not to do it to someone. But there is a weird like uh, nobody likes a rules lawyer where someone can say like, well, actually, the rules say that I can do this if I do X, Y, Z or, you know, how this all works out. And so as a person that's like, yeah, the DM said yes or no to this, we should just like let that go. It's hard being the person that knows in the back of the head. Actually, if you check the if you check page 72 of Volo's Guide to Monsters, it says <laughs> I, I, I never want to be that guy. And so there's a lot of just like, I will accept your ruling and move on. And I I was kind of the same way as a a judge in Magic the Gathering, it was often kind of when I would play in a tournament, you'd call some you'd call a judge over for a thing and you'd say, like, hey, doesn't XYZ do this? And they'd say, Oh, no. And I'm just like Oh, yeah, it does. I I I actually know this because I'm a judge too. <laughs> Shit, I need hold on. The, the wizard cop isn't agreeing with me. Hold on, <laughs> <laughs> we need to figure this out. Bring my lawyer. <laughs> I never want to be the the rules lawyer, the person that is doing that to people. So uh, I I try I do my best
0: not to do it. But it does exist in your mind, and you have to like suppress that on a level. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah, you're 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 cursed with knowledge. <laughs>
1: hmm I've eaten the fruit yeah absolutely
0: yeah uh, well I appreciate you giving me insight into what you like uh, the games that you enjoy both analog and digital it's time for us to finally talk about a video game about analog video games uh, we are talking about one of the most uh, interesting uh, modern releases that I have personally played it is a game that is difficult to talk about because of what it is doing in terms of design we'll get to that in a second We are talking about (laughs) 2021's inscription with a Y.
1: The Y is important.
0: This is the part where I'm gonna say a bunch of titles and names and video games, so bear with me here. Inscription is a roguelike deck-building game published by Devolver Digital, who are mainly known for publishing independent games. The Austin, Texas-based publisher has published some incredible games since its founding in 2009, including the Hotline Miami series, Enter the Gungeon, The Talos Principle, Ape Out, Katana Zero, Cult of the Lamb, and more. But keep in mind, they are a publisher they are not a developer the developer of inscription is daniel mullins games the game is directed by daniel mullins who previously created games like pony island and the hex Uh, according to an interview in 2021 that mullins gave to game rant the origins of this game began in december of 2018 when mullins is participating in a ludum dare a game jam Uh, a competition in which participants are challenged to make a video game in 48 hours. The theme of the game jam at the time was sacrifices must be made, and Mullins, uh, a Magic the Gathering player, took influence from Magic the Gathering's sacrifice concept to make a card game of his own, and took the concept even further by also adding the idea of sacrificing your material body parts in order to turn the tide of the game to the detriment of like your, you know, of your player characters, so like you would sacrifice your eye to get an advantage, but then like your 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 field of vision is going to be messed up for the rest of the playtime. Following the competition, Mullins added the game, which he titled "Sacrifices Must Be Made," to itch.io, a website that hosts games made by independent developers. After getting positive feedback from players, he decided to expand on the concept and make it into a full game, which brings us to Inscription. The game's music was composed by Jonas Senzel, who also did the game's wonderful sound design. David Hageman was the principal 3D artist. And it's difficult to talk about this game without spoiling some of the exciting things this game does. This is very much a game about the journey it takes you on. I think this headline from the satirical video game journalism website theharddrive.net explains it best. (laughs) The headline reads, Inscription fan won't shut up about game they can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's the pod (laughs) yep Uh, thank you for listening to selected Star. we'll open up the discussion for spoilers after the no country for old games segment coming up in a bit but here is a spoiler free description of the game and its inciting incident you may find yourself sitting in a monster shack and you may ask yourself (laughs) how
2: did i get here (laughs) While you let
1: cards go by
0: (laughs) Uh, You wake up At a table in a dark cabin Lit only with wax candles In front of you is a table A shadowy figure Whose face you can't make out Sits on the opposite side He is challenging you to a game of his design He gives you a starting deck of a handful of cards And guides you through a game Of various challenges Where the core theme is sacrifice It's more than a game though and this dungeon master of sorts has grave permanent consequences planned for you if you lose. Shenanigans ensue. As for the gameplay, get ready for the most interesting thing in the world to listen to, card game rules. You are playing a card game against the person sitting across from you uh, from a first person perspective, which adds to the game's immensely creepy atmosphere. The game is played on a three x four grid you get the bottom row of that grid, your opponent gets the other two, one for the cards currently in play and another for the cards he intends to play next. So you know his moves ahead of time by at least one turn. Each card has a health value and an attack value. At the end of each turn, the player's cards with attack values will attack what is in front of them automatically. If it is another card, the card's health is subtracted by the opposing card's attack value. And if there's no card between the attacking card and the opponent, The opponent takes damage equal to that card's attack value there is a weighing scale on the table and every point of damage a player takes adds a tooth what a tooth to their side of the scale uh the goal of the game is to tip your opponent's side of the scale by a difference of five teeth or more that's how you win the game the core theme of this card game is sacrifice in order to play more powerful cards you need to sacrifice weaker cards on your playing field the cost of higher value cards is represented by the number of blood drops on your card. At the beginning of each turn, you have to draw a card from one of two decks. One deck is all squirrels—oops, all squirrels—which uh, can be played at no cost and are meant to be sacrificed with cards. Sacrifice four cards with the blood cost. The other deck is cards you've accumulated playing the game against the, the creature uh, sitting across from you. Uh, losing is the ultimate sacrifice. If you are defeated, you lose the deck you built up, and you have to start from the beginning with a new starting deck this is where the roguelike of roguelike deck building comes in Uh, the roguelike elements of the game are experienced through the sequences between card battles Uh, the dungeon master you're playing against creates randomly generated maps for you to move across each space is an opportunity or challenge of some kind one that frequently comes back to the theme of sacrifice you can make a card stronger but you also risk losing it permanently you can add an ability to a card but only by giving up another things of that nature some cards have special abilities, and abilities can be given to your cards depending on the spaces you land on in the map, making the game more dynamic and demanding more strategic thinking from you than a numbers game. Like the story, there is so much more to it than that, but I think I covered the basic mechanics. Are there any major starting mechanics you think I'm missing, Andrew?
1: The only thing that I would add to this this section of the game I can't talk about is uh, there revealed in like the first loop or the second loop is that you are also like in an escape room in the shack itself Mm -hmm. where you can you can stand up from the table walk around solve little puzzles around and find new cards to get added into things outside of the direct game on the table
0: which is such a neat little it's
1: wild to be playing a card game where i can step up and stop playing the card game at any time
0: yeah no totally Mm -hmm. Uh, the game is also like an escape room style game on top of being a deck building roguelike. This is like all video games in one. It's, it's so much to it. I'm excited to talk about that. Inscription was released in 2021. Other games released in 2021 include Death Store and Loop Hero, both of which were also published by Devolver Digital, Psychonauts 2, Metroid Dread, Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart, Returnal, Resident Evil Village, Sable, Unpacking, and Wildermyth. Really quickly, Andrew, have you played any of these games?
1: Oh, I have lost a lot of hours to Wildermyth and Loop Hero uh,
0: <laughs> for very different
1: reasons for both games. But yeah, I've I've played a lot of Wildermyth. Uh, uh, Riley and I actually had a really long stream going where we were playing through a bunch of the campaigns for that one. Um, that kind of I love tactics games on top of all the things we talked about before, and that kind of. Tactics game with such a strong storytelling element tacked onto the front of it was so cool. And just all the different ways that you can approach character storytelling and design and how it impacts the tactics that you play out and the world that you create and interact with is so cool. And Loop Hero, I don't even think I like, but I put like a hundred hours into it. So <laughs> who knows what exactly liking a video game actually means? <laughs>
0: You sound like a Dota 2 player. This is my most played game. Don't ask me if I like it.
1: (laughs) It is not recommended. I did lose
0: days to it. Mm -hmm. 5,000 hours. Hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I got to play some of these games here, but I have played Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. Uh, I have played Resident Evil Village. I played Metroid Dread. I love all these games. And Mm -hmm. I played Unpacking. Unpacking is a very funny story. It was because... I built the gaming PC that I now use to make this podcast, and I like—I was like, yeah, let's do Game Pass. I want to do Game Pass. Let's play these really cool games. I download Forza, and then I download Unpacking. I still haven't played Forza. <laughs> the first game I play on my gaming PC <laughs> is a pixel indie game about unpacking
1: boxes. <laughs> you got to move all your new pixels around into just the right places.
0: Yeah, I'm a stereotype. <laughs> um, i want to play the games that i haven't played on this list too i have Returnal, death store and psychonauts 2 downloaded right now want to mm-hmm. check out loop hero although you are not being very encouraging of that i guess <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i think that loop hero is a loop hero is a really interesting game and i like a lot of what it has going on i just it's a game that i i i don't know i i played long play times of it and then i walked away and i was just like I don't think I enjoyed any of that. I don't think this is for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at just letting myself get sucked into doing hours of a thing I don't actually like, though.
0: A hundred hours in, I was like, eh, not for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. One of those, you're just like, I spent all Tuesday doing this, and I don't know that I really enjoyed it. But I felt like a numby was going up, and so I, I felt like I was getting something out of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I used to play idle games, so I get it. hmm <laughs> Cookie clicker, remember? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Inscription was a t- late 2021 release, making it the most recently released game we've discussed on the show. Hades was another game I discussed on the show, as well as Spiritfarer. Those are both 2020 releases. Um, a game that released just two years ago must have made a huge impact on you if that's the game you wanted to discuss on the show. What... Ultimately, made you land on inscription, and I know that we still aren't in the spoiler section yet. But <laughs>
1: try <Yeah>, your best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is stuff that I can't really talk about until we we lift the uh, spoiler curtain. But I lo- from from the moment I started playing the game, uh, the first thing you do is you hit a play button and then you hit continue game. So I, I replayed it for this recording, mm-hmm. um, and as I went in, one of the the neat things I realized is that the figure on the other end of the table says to you, Oh, welcome back. It's been quite some time. I I'm sure you've forgotten how to play by now. So let's go over the instructions. And I sat there looking at, looking at my screen and I was like, has he always said that? Or is this a new continued thing? Cause I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a fresh save file. But does he always say like welcome back because I uh, god I don't I don't remember for sure. But there is a there is a level of unnervingness to the the whole game that you're playing through in this roguelike. The the physical gameplay is not is not super innovative or challenging in the in the in the the deck builder, but every touch of it has that little flourish to it that makes it sing the music is really creepy and stands out the way that when you pick a card in your hand that you know is it costs a blood so you're gonna have to sacrifice something on board you look at every the way that the game tells you that a card can be sacrificed for it is that it will like the the art looks scared and the card shakes like it knows it's about to get sacrificed Early on, the character the, the the guy telling you how to play the game says, "Oh, don't worry, the suffering is real, but you'll get the card back." There are so many little touches and little flourishes that the game does that really make it sing early on and make it stand out even if the gameplay itself feels a little not stilted but a little I don't know it's a it's a it's a roguelike deck builder. I've played these before I've done a lot of these. You know, it it stands out in a way that a lot of other ones don't because they're focused
0: on the strategy of the cards more than they are the story being told. Sure. Yeah, totally. Uh, You mentioned that you aren't typically into horror games. So what ultimately drew you to this game? I should probably
1: step that statement back a little bit. I am am a a horror baby slightly dipping my toes into horror stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I I don't ever see myself being a person that's gonna go play, play you know the the, a Resident well Resident Evil is kind of more of an action than straight horror but like, I'm not I'm not gonna go play something that's just, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's I realize that's not the deepest pull for amnesia yet, or something but, right? Yeah amnesia i I'm never gonna boot up a system and do that but I do like. There's something about unnerving that I really like. Uh, there's some, and I, I've started to get into like watching horror movies, especially a lot of old ones because I can like separate myself, or ones that have a bit of camp to them, like the Scream series, where yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is a mystery series about a dude that stabs you. I'm, I'm, it's not like super scary, scary. I, I, I don't tend to do super well with horror, or it's not something that I actively seek out. But I did, I do like the something about the aesthetic that. I was like, okay, it's kind of a spooky deck builder. Let's give it a shot. Let's see how it goes. And when you're playing it, there's it, there's something to it that is like it's a a a n- the natural horror. The you're in a cabin in the woods. There's you're locked in a cabin with a thing that is ostensibly trying to kill you, but before it does that, it wants to play it wants to play You know, D&D, but instead of doing battles, you do card games. It wants to take me through little role-playing games before it can kill me. That's a scary thing, but if I break out of this cabin, I'm not sure I'm going to fare much better in these woods. There's something about that kind of, I don't know, the natural horror, me being a gamer here. the natural horror of being outside, you know, uh, that really stands out to me, and, and, and I like a lot. I something about the the aesthetic just really pulled me in
0: no yeah totally and I, I totally empathize with the uh you know like horror baby stuff i used to be that way too when i was uh just like getting into movies and was in college and uh you know just very quick advice for people who may also be in the same boat the best way to get into horror is to watch things that are almost horror movies that mm-hmm. way like because i think one i think a lot of movies that like do horror and aren't mainly horror end up being scarier for a lot of people like when you get to the scary parts of like ocarina of time because you're not expecting it to be a scary game or anything like that right but like when you go in expecting horror you find yourself being a lot more braced for it but like if you watch a movie like alien which is like oh it's a horror movie kind of but it's really a a sci-fi movie like it's a lot easier to like get used to those things like the Mm -hmm. shining is it's a kubrick film first and foremost but it does have like The texture of horror all over it if you watch uh the evil dead movies especially to an army of darkness it's like comedy forward violent movies but like they do have legit horror in them too so i think and like you said the scream movies are also a good shot there because they're slasher films but and they're also scooby-doo mysteries right (laughs) yeah i and i will also kind of coming
1: from the opposite direction of that my my tiptoe has been more through uh horror comedy into like can we slowly get rid of the comedy and drip feed my way into more horror because yeah. for me it's stuff like um the movie Cabin in the Woods, which is like a sci-fi comedy using horror tropes. Or um, you know, other other kind of things like Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which is a parody of slasher films. Uh yeah. more, but that follows the same beats. Um those those have been kind of my way to get into the genre as well as just saying, you know what, let's trust my friend Marn and see
0: what she'll tell me I can <laughs> I can watch even though I'm a big baby. Marn's great. Um yeah, mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead also good for that because it is yes like a, a zombie film with like some brutal zombie stuff but it is also one of the funniest movies ever.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, but uh before we talk more about Inscription, uh we do have to talk about the availability of video games like we do in every episode in a little segment I do called No Country for Old Games. let's talk about how readily available inscription is uh the subject of video game preservation means a great deal to me because i believe that video games are an art form and create experiences that leave some kind of impact on the people who play them a game like this uh, especially Uh, unfortunately this means very little to publishers who have historically struggled with keeping their older titles on modern hardware and as time goes on games that were once easily readily available to purchase become more and more difficult to acquire as you mentioned earlier Andrew, you like the Nintendo DS a whole lot. <laughs> you cannot play a DS on anything that isn't a DS.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can you can emulate them on consoles that happen to have touch screens, but that's about it. Or or a mouse that you can use to replicate a touch
0: screen, but that never quite
1: does it right.
0: Right, yeah. There are certainly t- ways that you can try to do it through less legal means, and I encourage you to do it even. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's the other cool thing about uh, DS modding, is that there are a lot of really great tools out there for adding things to a DS that
0: don't typically go on a DS. Yeah. Or at least not all at the same time. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But the point is, as time goes on, games that were once readily and easily available become more and more difficult to acquire and in this segment we are going to rate today's game on a scale of a to arg and arg is an expression of frustration and it is in no way me covertly advocating for piracy that's illegal you know it's a it's against the law don't do that Mm -hmm. or somebody's going to come to your house (laughs) um anyway how do you play inscription
1: I, I played it on uh, the PC when it first released, and it's still, it feels, it's it's a little tough talking about a game like this since it came out two years ago. So it's just like, yeah, it's still up on Steam. Good to go. <laughs> uh, but I, I played it, bought it through Steam, played it, you know, on PC. Thing worked out okay. Um, I will say I, I replayed it on a Steam Deck uh, for uh, this recording just because it was, it's portable and I can bring it upstairs with me. Um, but I believe the game also has like console releases and a Switch release, if I'm remembering right. Um, we'll talk about it. <laughs> and if the game plays on the Switch as well as it did on the Steam Deck, it's not a great one to one port, I guess. Uh, mostly because of the way that this game treats looking around as a thing that you do with the arrow keys. You have to try and replicate that while also trying to work a touchpad to move the cards onto the screen like it's a mouse. And that console does not do that super great. I have no idea how it plays on the Switch or on consoles on a TV. That was just my experience trying to play it on this more handheld system. But it's still available in, in its original working form as far as I know on PC.
0: So seems functional there. Yeah, no, Uh, the game was uh, originally released digitally for Windows computers on October 19th, 2021, and it would expand to Linux and Mac OS on June 23rd, 2022, and it did come to consoles, specifically PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 on August 30th, 2022, the Nintendo Switch December 1st, 2022, and on Xbox One and Xbox Series X and S on April 10th, 2023 hate the xbox naming convention so much come on guys what are you doing (laughs) that's an aside special reserve games did a limited physical run for the switch version of the game it is currently listed as out of stock on their website as of the time of this recording so a physical version was at one point available for pre-orders and shipped to people who wanted it but it is not something that is currently available uh inscription is also one of the games you can download if you are subscribed to the extra tier or higher on playstation plus for the playstation 4 and 5 it's been available on playstation plus since late june of 2023 and is still there as of the time of this recording it's still on all of these storefronts as of the time of this recording i played this game on the playstation 5 and i'm really glad i did this game is really really good and i'm glad that i uh was motivated to play it we can call this an a for availability Uh, I'm a lot more lenient on independent games not having an ongoing physical release because they do not remotely have the kind of resources larger studios and publishers have. Uh, The game is only two years old, so I'm not surprised it's abundantly available. But I am really glad it's being added to almost every available platform since its release. It's basically everything but phones at this point. And I'm really glad the effort is being made to expose this game to as wide an audience as possible because it's an incredible game.
1: I'm I'm mad that the physical copies are going on eBay for $140, but I definitely get it. <laughs> yeah. How how did the control on PlayStation? That was something that I was kind of curious about. Did it feel fluid and natural?
0: Yes, and also no, but like no in a way that I really liked. So like you don't have okay. like a free moving camera. You do like that the, the, the perspective is fixed, but like when you are getting up and moving around in uh, the cabin for example it's like you're moving like one unit at a time and you have to do these hard camera turns to look around Mm -hmm. yeah Um, i really dug that because it kind of felt like you were playing like a mist type adventure game from like the 90s but with a with a polish of a modern video game the dual sense interestingly enough uh, on the playstation 5 controller is reactive to the environment uh and and the tone of the game you're playing so like sometimes it'll have like a green light and then sometimes it'll like switch to a red light depending on the mo, mood and tone and the way the game is going. So I really enjoyed the dual sense aspects of this on the controller. And although like this is oh, clearly cool. a game developed primarily for uh, a computer experience, uh, I really, really enjoyed playing on the PlayStation five, actually.
1: Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I think that I'm wondering as I've been, playing more on a steam deck i think that the problem i get is that it's like trying to emulate the pc edition on a handheld instead of trying to play a controller version on a console yeah in a way that i think leads to worse game i i've noticed this in a couple different games now that i think leads to a worse gameplay experience overall but i yeah okay i well good i'm glad i'm glad that it plays well on on consoles because as i was playing i was like damn i hope this isn't how everyone that is playing this on a
0: console (laughs) feels so I'm 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 glad it's not (laughs) I'm hearing a lot of stories about games like getting like steam deck verification but not necessarily being like oh the developer was able to go in and like make sure this was like optimized for the steam deck Mm -hmm. in terms of performance and playability and I'm not judging independent developers for this nearly as much because again like resources and you don't have QA teams and testers to do this kind of thing but it is really disappointing when like AAA publishers are like saying something is Steam Deck verified because they want the check mark because like it's right. technically playable, but you need to go in and like change a bunch of things to make it like a, a controller experience and not like a, a mouse and keyboard thing like you seem to be uh, dealing with on your end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is an incredible game and I'm so glad it's becoming more and more available over time. The PC version of the game holds an 85 out of 100 on Metacritic, and the PS5 version holds an 87. The game was nominated for a variety of game accolades from various outlets and organizations and won several. Uh, Among them are four awards from the 2022 Independent Games Festival Awards, including the Grand Prize. It also won Game of the Year at the 22nd Game Developers' Choice Awards, and the entertainment website Polygon listed it as their best game of 2021. This game has its shooters. Uh, But we are not here to reduce inscription to a series of numbers and accolades. We are here to discuss what it means to someone who played it. So, let's get into it, Andrew.
1: 4, 8, 15, 16,
0: 23, 42. Andrew, Andrew, what are you doing?
1: Oh, hey, Marn. Uh, so, I'm playing through an alternate reality game, and there's a number station puzzle that we just can't solve. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I tried everything else, and I figured that the best way to solve it would be to get into its head and think like a number station. I've been saying numbers into microphones for hours. Okay, well, I, I think I have a better idea. What's that? You could just listen to the Argonauts podcast. Every two weeks, I could let you know the ins and outs of old Args and give
0: you a deep dive on how they were created.
1: Uh, do you think we could like have a nuanced discussion about game-making philosophy and how cultures around games have changed as well?
0: Yeah, and you can definitely continue to fail to solve old Args along the way.
1: Well, it sure would be cool if that was a podcast you could find bung with a bunch of other great shows over on the Moonshot Network. You know, it sure would. <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for the invite. Uh, anyways, I'm going to get back to this, though. 23. 19.
0: Okay. <laughs> As I said earlier, this is a very difficult game to talk about without spoilers. If you are spoiler averse or if you are at all interested in playing this game, I would encourage you to stop here and come back when you play through the game. It's not very long. Uh, How long to beat says it takes about 12 and a half hours to get through the main story. That personally lines up with my experience, but I do think that this is also contingent on your level of experience with card games in general. Uh, but regardless, I don't think it'll take you that long to play. Definitely check it out and come back later if you do not want to be spoiled. But Andrew, I'm mm-hmm. going to free you from the shackles of spoiler-free discussion. Oh, it feels so good. The gloves ah. are now off. You got your weighted Rock sand <laughs> clothing, whatever you, whatever your anime of weighted clothing of choice is more of a Dragon Ball guy myself. Uh, it's but the gloves and the weighted clothing are off. We can talk about the game. It's narrative and it's gameplay freely. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, 12 hours to beat, but, but Kiefer, this is just a simple deck builder. How could it take that long to get through?
0: Well, i think we should spend a minute talking about the structure of this game so we can really talk about the things that we love about this game that's so unique to it i'm going to talk about the, the, the we can talk i'm going to hit the broad points and then you can like sort of fill them in because i think you with your card game experience are able to speak to the meta textual stuff in a more vibrant way in a more contextual way than i would be able to so yeah absolutely yeah the game is divided into three acts what people are broadly familiar with in the marketing of this game is only the first act of the game. Uh, the first act is a game against the uh, pagan god Leshy in his cabin. Uh, <laughs> this is where the escape the room style gameplay is, this is the roguelike elements. This is the the, the tra- traditional form of the card game that you're playing. And then at some point when you're playing, you suddenly cut to a full motion video segment. Live action actors, what's, what's <laughs> going on here? And then you are watching live action footage of a of a video blogger whose name is Luke Carter, with a D, opening a pack of cards from a game that was also called Inscription that's apparently discontinued. And then he gets instructions that leads to coordinates in the woods that tells him to go and dig something up in the woods. And it's the game that you're playing. And it turns out you're playing as Luke Carter, playing the video game Inscription, that is a video game in a video game and it's this, this meta textual thing. Uh, How am I going so far?
1: (laughs) No, I think you got it. The first thing you do in the game is you hit the play button. Uh, So you're actually, you're not even playing inscription. You're watching a guy play inscription.
0: You're, you're playing a let's play. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, like when you open up the game, the new game button is bricked out. You can't, uh, you can't click it. You can only click continue. So it's like you're picking up, in the middle of a roguelike that you're playing, Mm -hmm. which a really brilliant thing this game does is like, before you get to the full motion video thing for the first time, at least at one point before it cuts to that, you do hear one random bit of voice acting in an otherwise non-voice acted game where somebody's speaking and it freaks you the fuck out. (laughs) Yes.
1: Well, yeah, it's, uh, I, so I remember the first time I played it, I streamed it. Um, because I just heard, oh, it's going to be good. Whatever, we'll play this horror rogue. Like it'll take me two hours, and then I'll go do other things. Fun, and then it ended up being my entire Saturday. But I, uh, I, I remember that when I booted up the game, you hit play, and then you hear a voice that says, "All right, let's see what's on this thing," and then there's no other voice acting for the entirety of how you go. So you forget that that even happens. It's been there the whole time. But you just you forget it happened. There are times when the the screen kind of blurs and gets softer. And when you know what's up, you realize that it's oh, it's VCR fuzz as the video is coming in and out. But as you're playing, you're just kind of like, "Oh, I'm just woozy from card game action, I guess it's it's one of those rare things that it tells you exactly what it's doing the entire time it's doing it. You just never realize that you could it's something worth picking up on until you finish a run and a guy says something and then knocks over a camcorder and it's the scariest thing that's happened in a game where you've been murdered four
0: times by now. Shit. Yeah, after you have defeated uh, Leshy a couple of times and engaged with the escape the room style mechanics of the game because like you have to play the game itself to progress but what you really need to do is get a bearing on your environment and you have to find three cards that are talking to you Uh, Mm -hmm. that are speaking to you. Part of the cards, Yu-Gi-Oh bullshit. uh, Love it. And they're giving you hints as to where you can find the other cards. Pick them up and then they tell you where you can get a roll of film because when you lose, you don't just start from the beginning. What Leshy is actually doing is killing you. And by killing you, like when you lose to him, he takes a picture of you and turns you into a card that you can later pick up and use in future playthroughs when the next victim... Mm-hmm. is playing inscription against him and basically you have to be the you have to keep accumulating cards and also try to figure out how you can get the roll of film that he hides in the, the cabin somewhere so he can't turn you into a card and you can turn it around on him and turn him into a card.
1: It's so fun and it leads to really cool I mean the, the best thing about roguelikes is the way that they, they build on previous runs and you get to grow as you go through. And so when I finally, in this in this replay, as when I beat him for the first time, it was because I had made it, I had been able to build up an overpowered deck led by my player cards Andrew and two and Andrew, but the E is the three because mm-hmm. uh, I'd lost those runs and made my new cards and then found them as I was going through and saying, "Great, I got to put this together using the best stuff of some of the cards I had before." So now I'm just like. I'm getting better and better both at being better at playing the game but also building busted stuff it's like the game wants me to win at some point because it does
0: (laughs) it does yeah and that's let's speak to the brilliance of that really quickly before we move forward in terms of plot progression what is really good about this game is that it wants you to beat it and it gives you so many tools besides actually just playing the game in a balanced manner to do so the game is at every single point trying to stack the game in your favor. Uh, like the first tell of this is you get to see what Leshy gets to do a turn ahead of you. So you can anticipate what his next move is going to be.
1: Into the Breach, I think is one of the most impactful games that we've had in a long time in ways that people don't talk about too often. Because the, that's the first time I can think of where a tactics game came out and said, hey, we're gonna tell you everything that your opponent is going to do on the next turn. So that your job is to react to that and prevent it from happening and i think that so many games have taken that idea and moved forward with it in a way that has led to some great design Mm -hmm. like inscription where you see what the next cards that are going to be played are i've I've seen this kind of thing in a lot of other games of you have semi-perfect information it's what you do with it that's going to matter next and i think
0: that that puts a lot of power and agency in a player's hands in a really cool way Yeah, and it also sort of adds to a sense of dread in an interesting way, too, because you're also like, oh, fuck, there's a grizzly coming. Oh, God, I can't. I have to make sure that none of the cards, I've got, I've, I have a really good card in this lane. It's going to annihilate the card in front of it. So I have to sacrifice him so mm-hmm. I don't bring the grizzly out. And it's, <laughs> you, you have to kind of fuck yourself a little bit so he doesn't fuck you harder. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's very dynamic in that way because it's so anticipatory. But he's also like these challenges that he's giving you or these uh, bonuses that he's giving you are all ultimately buffing you in some way. It actually behooves you to get rid of some cards in your deck because maybe you have a dud maybe you have a rat pack because another thing that he does is he gives you like consumables that you can use to sort of try and uh, stack the game in your favor and you can store up to three at a time and they can be like oh uh, let me use a plier to rip a tooth out of my mouth so I can put a tooth on the scale so it tips in my favor a little bit or oh uh, I need a squirrel but I don't want to I don't if I draw another squirrel, that's going to take a whole turn, but I have a squirrel in a bottle here, I can use that and then I can sacrifice it. And I don't, I don't need to draw a squirrel and give up a, a, a valuable draw. He's giving you all of these resources to make the game easier for you because he wants you to get further into the game because he is mm-hmm. a, a, a DM of some point. Like, yeah, he's fucking with you, but he also wants you to play the game. And like, there's little ways that he fucks with you too. Like, if you have like a full uh, stack of consumables and you land on a thing that would give you consumables he gives you a rat card that isn't especially powerful and kind of just like fills your deck with a card that you kind of don't want Mm -hmm. so that would be a card that you would want to sacrifice in favor of another card there's so many like little things that both balance the game in an interesting way and also completely tip the scales in your favor as a player against an opponent
1: yeah each of the each well not each of them but a lot of the cards in the game have little sigils on them that give special powers like death touch, this one, this thing, you know, any damage this deals is enough to kill whatever it's fighting, or when this thing dies, it goes back to your hand, things like that. Part of breaking this game is looking at it and saying, like, oh, the guy that comes back to my hand every turn, it costs three blood to play it. I, know, I don't have three blood to do that, but I could sacrifice it in order to give my one blood creature that power. And it already has a thing that has death touch, so now Every time I play this card, it'll kill whatever it's up against, and then if it dies, it goes back, and I can replay it and do this loop again, and now you got a stew going. (laughs) Once you come to terms with the mechanics that you're playing with, it it really is a game where the world is your oyster, and you realize, like, oh, if I slap anything on a mantis god, it becomes the strongest card in 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 the game without saying, you know. Oh, there's these cards that if I just put one, two, or three things here, then the world's in, it's an entirely different game. (laughs) This card is OP. By the time you're on your third or fourth run, you can make cards that are turn one wins, uh, which is always feels good to draw it and go like, oh, and two, here we go. You've got triple strike and two power. Turn one, slap you down. Bop, bop, bop. That's six teeth, baby. Baby, you got a stew going. The game does a great job, even though it's playing in horror spaces and playing with dread, it makes you feel like you're you're getting hard-earned wins. Then it really feels like the floor kind of gets pulled out from under you when the game reveals like, by the way, this is also
0: Ben drowned. This is also House <laughs> of
1: Leaves, the video game.
0: Yeah, no. Um, video games may possibly be the best medium to do metatextual stories, and I'll get to this point later on. But I need to move forward and tell you more more interesting ways that this game works. So yes. when you actually beat Leshy fairly, without really engaging with the escape the room mechanics, you beat him and he's like, "Ah, oh, oh, you beat me. But you didn't beat the moon and then he drags the moon down and then you <laughs> have to fight the moon. But at this point, I already have an instant death card. So I have a snake that just poisons the moon to death in one move.
2: America can, should,
1: must, and will blow up the moon. Yes, And we'll be doing it during a full moon, so we make sure we get it all.
0: So he's like, oh, fuck, you got the moon. Ah. Alright. Um, well, uh, I, I still have a camera that will turn you into a card, so fuck you.
1: Yeah, good job. You get to go up on the Hall of Fame, and we get to play again.
0: Don't worry though, you get you you become a super awesome card. So the next person who finds you is going to have an even fun more fun time going against me. And you find you you try and fight back and you grab the camera that's on the shelf and you try and take a picture of him but you don't have the roll of film. And you're Like okay, so on my next playthrough, I think I have to find a roll of film and the reason you get these talking cards is like they kind of give you clues as to where the roll of film is in the cabin. Mm-hmm. So you can get the roll of film and then the next time you beat Leshy and also the moon you take a picture of leshy you get the role of film and then at this point you actually see what leshy looks like he's not like the scary shadowy figure anymore you see that he is like a dirty old looking man yeah with like who looks like an old man that's also like a bush
1: <laughs> he's very like just a just i don't know he looks like the guy behind jigsaw except if he had like moss on his face it's when you get like to the moon for the first time and you finally see him and he's just an old man and uh, just a, a person like you, but just slightly warped in a way that is like creepier than being a big beast would have been. He's just an, an odd old man that wants to sit and play card games and will keep you at his table until the end of time. You're, he's willing to continue doing this forever. That's you start the game by continuing, and he says, Welcome back. It's been a while,
0: but we're ready to play. Yeah. Like, he just wants to keep you, the person playing the video game. And, like, he's, he's like a DM, but he's also like performing his role in like a video game environment because his role is to play games. As an NPC that's somewhat conscious, he revels in his role, but he's also just really, he genuinely loves the act of playing a video game or like the act of playing a card game against an opponent. And, yeah, like, he is macabre about it. He is kind of like jigsaw, like a like a deliverer of punishment. But he is also like giving you all the tools you need to to meaningfully beat him. He's excited about having a challenge. The thing is, you don't defeat Leshy as an entity by playing the card game fairly and beating him fair and square. You you beat him by getting the the roll of film and taking a picture of him. And Andrew, like when you take a picture of him, he doesn't just turn into a card. What does he just? What does he turn into? He's just like a bushman on a card attached to
1: a wall, unable to deal with you as you're just in a dark room full of bodies and a glowing new game button.
0: Mm -hmm. You get the new game button that you could not (laughs) press earlier in a game, which initiates act two, which is a traditional top down pixel game where it's like Pokemon, but like you're playing a card game. But it's also like, it's like just not, it's not like a traditional like Pokemon game. Like, oh, you start from one town, you go to another town. It's like you're fighting just the gym leaders, right? It's the,
1: it's the Pokemon trading card game video game. It's the, (laughs) the, that from the old Game Boy, the old Game Boy Color game. You're just like, but you're playing Inscription. It is such a wild twist that the entire time you have not been playing Inscription capital I. You have been playing Leshy's game, a weird subset that has been made in Inscription, the floppy disk that some guy found somehow. And now you get to play actual Inscription with characters that know what's up.
0: Yeah. So it turns out that Leshy is one of four entities that was designed to be one of four people that you're meant to beat in this overworld. He is a forest entity. There is an undead entity, there is a wizard entity, and there is uh, a robot entity. Mm-hmm. And they basically all have four different play styles. And the play style that you have primarily been engaging with is Leshi's style of wilderness creatures. But there's also a bit of the undead in his in his uh, play style too. But that's not really super important to the narrative. Um, but <laughs> there, you've been mainly playing with like two types of cards. But there's actually four builds that you can engage with. And this is just fundamentally like challenging your perception of the game in an interesting way like now you are playing against like different play styles you are now like entering the idea of like is there a meta in this game like what can i right. do with what what is uh, with this wizard and like with like pokemon at the very top you get to pick like what style of deck do you want to start playing with you want to do an undead primarily deck do you want to do a wilderness deck do you want to do a robot deck Do you want to do a wizard deck instead of like playing with the cards that leshi is handing you at the beginning and sort of having to play through his guided experience and
2: mm-hmm. then you
0: fight these entities and each of the entities has one of the four styles that you played against you get some of their cards you unlock booster packs you can build like a deck that's like a varietal mix of these cards and you can break the game even further in fun ways or you can mm-hmm. try and pl- build a deck of like specifically one cards what what was your experience like that
2: the
1: first time I played, I did uh, what I think you know. Ninety percent of players do, where they it says a welcome to the game. Which scribe do you want to take out? And I think you go. I want to take out Leshi. That asshole <laughs> just trapped me in a cabin for God knows how long. Of course, I'm fighting him, and you get that nature deck to start. This time, I decided to go with a wizard deck. This time, just to see, because it's always been so. It's so different from the others, where you're based on. You have to play a card that is like a specific kind of mana stone that if you, if you want to play a blue creature, you have to have a blue mana on the field. So you play that and then you can play your blue spells and the, the deck is terrible because you got three different colors and you always draw your, your blue stones, but you need your orange guys and it never comes together. Yeah. So what you do is you rip half of that out and you say, screw it blue only. And then I'll add in some squirrels and a wolf, and we'll go from there. Add in an undead. And I guess I'm charging energy from the robot. So I might as well grab a robot or two, too. And now you're trying to balance four different, you know, resource systems on top of each other in a deck. I mean, you're playing four different games, it feels like, at the same time, because you've just been playing one guy this whole time. And it turns out that's just a quarter of what you could be doing.
0: Yeah. In a way, he's saving you from how robust and complex this game is. But in another way, he's like completely limiting you in ways that you didn't even think possible until you unlock the second act of the game, and that really becomes like Mm -hmm. part of like the meta narrative of like what is, uh, what is like a an open experience, what is a guided experience, and then like what ultimately uh, Act Three will do, which we'll get into shortly. Getting into like the stuff I really like about Act Two, like not as just like a response to Act One, but I mean like the art style is very silly. I like that the idea of like getting to like mess around with these things, like uh and really finding new ways to engage with it and then also finding ways that you can just break it. Uh what I ultimately did was like I did I started with a Leshy deck, like you said, because I think that's what most people will just default to initially. Fuck this old man. And then like I was like, Hold on. I like this undead thing a little bit because it's like I'm I'm getting all these like bone tokens anyway and if you get a one of those like guys whose whole thing is like I I, I just like making bones I just like making bones like a gravedigger you could just <laughs> fundamentally break the game so you're just like basically getting unlimited bones and s- able to sell summon a skeleton army that will break
1: Yeah, the bones are their money and you get to just buy a new army
0: the bones are their money <laughs> the worms are their dollars I love yes. I love the, the the skeleton deck if you could figure out how to like exploit it because it's just like Bam! Skeleton.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. there's one card that has an activated ability that's just, oh yeah, spend one bone, get one skeleton. It was like, oh, but every time a skeleton dies, you get one bone. It's just unlimited skeletons. I get yeah. free, infinite skeleton deck. Perfect. Literally, yeah. Like I, I just kept doing that. The decks just play out in such a way that you eventually are able to just say like, oh, I, I just have an engine here, and that's one of the things that I, I love finding an engine and then iterating on it is one of my favorite things in any roguelike or any card game where you're just like, great, I know what I'm doing I just have to work within these confines now but this is where the power comes in and identifying that and being able to grow is just like, that's the bread and butter behind card games and this game does it in such a way that like, you gotta find your engine and break the game in order to progress in a way that feels really empowering and fun
0: yeah Another interesting thing about the way that this uh, section of the game plays is like it changes the rules of deck building where when you're playing with he's like, here's five cards or something like that, like four or five cards. I can't remember off the top of my head. Here you have like a minimum deck requirement that forces you to have like at least like what, a dozen cards in your deck at all times? 20. Like 12 to 50. Oh, 20. Oh, you need minimum 20 cards in your deck, including yeah. like in Squirrels are now part of your deck and not a separate deck to draw from. So you don't have a mm-hmm. separate resource deck. Everything's just one deck. And it's like a new thing you have to get used to. So even though you understand the core mechanics of Leshy's style of play, you have to like learn this new system and then still follow the rules as you understand them and then learn also two new systems of play. It's a lot, but it was fun. I actually, you know, some people say that the first act is the best act and it is but I do think that is necessary to have the second act to show like the potential of this card system.
1: The other thing that I really like about the second act beyond just the gameplay is the way that it starts digging deeper into the, the story at play here, but also on a more meta level of like, there's something up with this disc. Like this, this floppy disc is bad in act one. You could at one point, as you're getting more cards, you can find a card that is just like gray static. And when you pick it, it just shows like ones and zeros binary code. There was an ARG attached to this game that is uh, wild and weird and digs into the backstory of some of the things in ways that I think is, it's kind of like lost where like when it explains too much of stuff that's going on, it feels less interesting, but like, When you don't go into any of that, you just know that there's this card that like doesn't quite load right when you try to play it. And then in act two, you start getting into like, you can wander through the geometry at some points and find image files that aren't quite loading correctly and photographs that aren't quite loading correctly. And at some point you meet an NPC who talks about the old underscore data, that there's something on this disc that is old and bad and broken. She doesn't play the game anymore because she's encountered the old data and it has messed with her ability to be a gameplay piece. There's something in this disc deeper than just these four characters who have a power struggle based on card games. And I I love as it starts getting into that deeper level of things.
0: Right, three cards that are talking to you in the first act of the game are the other three scribes with their own uh, decks and powers and abilities. And mm-hmm. the first one that you get is us, st- who takes the form of the robot in the second act, PO3, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then that sort of becomes like he's the one that wants to sort of usurp Leshy and sort of take over as uh, the new flesh, the new, the new, <laughs> uh, the new DM of the guided inscription experience. Uh, so you end up beating all four of these leaders. And uh, it sort of initiates an event that sort of facilitates Act Three into making PO3 uh, take over as like what Leshy was doing in Act One, and the graphics sort of change to that. But before you do that, you also get another um, live-action FMV experience where your character Luke Carter is learning, trying to figure out more about the the game where this disc come from why was it buried why isn't why wasn't this game released to the general public who developed this game and if you want to explain any of this stuff you're you're welcome to i don't think we need to give like a full play-by-play the narrative experience if people are listening this far i'm assuming they played some of it but you can go ahead Mm
1: -hmm. no i i i think that it's something that's much cooler to experience than it is to have a guy tell you about but i one thing that i i love about it is you you keep finding a couple things that get like that recur through there at, at one point, this might've been between Acts two and three. It might've been in act three because act three, you get a lot more interspersing between the gameplay and new cuts to this guy trying to deal with stuff in his own life. But there are some things that keep popping up. Like the name Casey pops up. Uh, She's a, one of the death cards you could find before in act one. She's referenced somewhere in act two on a, on a gravestone in the, you know, the necromancer part. And now you find out that there's a girl named Casey who used to work for the company that made the card game and she passed away things that like get informed into what's happening. The game really smartly, I think never explicitly spells out what's wrong with the disc. What is the old data? What any of this actually is, but I think that it, it leads to a, a, deeper creeping more existential dread within the game itself as like the game is breaking on fundamental levels that you only realize when you go outside of it and you're a guy with a floppy disc going what the fuck is wrong with you
0: Uh, (laughs)
1: as he tries to figure out why this why this game was literally buried in the woods
0: yeah and then you get you try and call the company he tries to call the company about this inscription game like trying to get information about like hey why was this game but what's the deal with this? And then somebody be like, you need to return that. You need to return that game immediately. Give us that game. And then sending yeah. somebody to his house to constantly harass him is like, you're the guy who called about a game that you have, right? You have proprietary technology. We'll sue the shit out of you if you don't give us that
1: game. Like just
0: intimidation tactic.
1: The classic company answer of, uh, no, we never made that game. That game doesn't exist. If you have a copy of it, it is our official property and you do need to return it though. Uh, and you're just like, that's a fun little paradox there. That's
0: not real. That's not mine. Give it back.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) You know. Yeah. That that whole thing. But you lead in that Act Three where PO three the robot is sort of taking over as the DM, and that's when sort of like more and more of like the meta narrative really comes into form, and it's what I love most about the game as an experience, a narrative experience at least in terms of like telling. Like, there's obviously like this is a meta narrative in the literal in the in the very literal sense of like this is a game that is breaking the fourth wall and using that fourth wall as one of its load-bearing story elements where you are interacting with a quote unquote real world against the fake reality and the fake reality you know like that 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 part of meta but there's also like the meta narrative that it's telling about the nature of what gameplay is the nature of narrative driven mm-hmm. stories and the n- nature of what makes a good dm versus a bad dm like the <laughs> the ultimate antagonist of this game is a fucking terrible dm who like people say like oh you know the game isn't as good as it is in the first act and that's basically by design
1: yeah it's it's kind of the point because there's i've read a lot about like magic card design and and wizards of the coast puts out a lot of like game design articles about how you design card games specifically magic which is a fascinating treasure trove but one of the things they talk about is that they have like three primary psychographic of players that they use when they design a card game. You've got your uh, Johnnies who just care about, like, I want to play the biggest thing. I just want to have the coolest card, the biggest thing I can do, the neatest thing. Uh, You have a Timmy or Tammy, which is like, I want to do the cool thing. I want to figure out how the three or four cards can play together and do something neat. And I play cards as a reflection of myself. I'm I'm putting a creative element into what I'm doing. And then you have the spike, who is the person that just, I just want to play the best card. I just want to win the game. I want to do what I can. I'm here to to optimize. I'm here to win. And I think that this section of the game does an interesting job of saying, what's the game look like if it's designed by a spike? And mm-hmm. that's who you get in Poe. And Poe says things like as he's talking to you in all three acts where he, he says things like that was a misplay. You fucked up there. Like, yeah, I would have done that differently. He talks like people I know from my competitive magic, the gathering days, you know, your backseat, DMs, um, <laughs> your backseat, DMs. exactly. He is the guy that is just there to optimize and to win. And it's kind of his plan. Cause he, he's I'm here to win. I've got a thing in mind. I want to do, and I'm here to make sure it happens. But it is just this is what happens when the person that is in, in charge of the thing isn't the person that cares about maintaining the, the ma- maintaining the cabin in the woods, maintaining the aesthetic, maintaining, you know, he, he doesn't have a tutorial. He just says, oh, fuck it. Here you go. Play your cards. Leshy's like, oh, you can't get too far. You can't actually win till the third try because I have to slowly introduce you to new mechanics over time. I don't know. It's an interesting look at the meta mechanics of how you design and navigate leading a gameplay experience
0: right like it's, it's 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 such such an interesting thing to like say like oh you know like it's a it's a game about like a good dm versus a bad dm because like leshy you know as like you you play against him like obviously he's like you know killing people and turning them into cards and everything but like in <laughs> terms of like you uh, a player playing a game and him being the facilitator of the game He's incredible at his job. He cultivates an aesthetic, He cultivates an environment. He immerses you into the experience. When I was playing this game, uh, my roommate Avery, who was in the Pokemon Emerald episode, uh, was listening to the game. and like without like even really watching the game, he said, "This game is scary because the 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 constant music, the ambient music playing in the environment mm-hmm. was just scary and frightening when you do the fishmonger mini boss that he creates for you it is the scariest sounding scariest feeling most tense experience and nothing that poe or po3 creates in his world is remotely as engaging or evocative as that like if somebody who is passively consuming this game is able to have an emotional reaction out of it uh, as well in the first act as my roommate did like that that is a testament to like what the game itself inscription and also like what the person facilitating the game Leshy is able to do as a DM versus Poe who is literally a robot. His environment is literally a robotic environment that's cold and sterile and blue mm-hmm. and like his map is literally just a recreation of the map from Act 2 whereas Leshi created his own maps and his own challenges on those maps.
1: I think another, another part of that is that there's also what you know as a player because in Act 1 you know that the cabin is real act three you know that his place is fake as you've gone through act two and realized oh we've zoomed out so far that when we zoom back in i know that i'm just stuck in post thing i can probably break out of this right like i can you know we're just in his little world uh, as shitty as it may be
0: <laughs> yeah there's like like the way that that game ultimately keeps from being bad even though you're playing against a quote unquote bad DM is like that the, the central card game is still a fun card game to play and mm-hmm. like the thing about like Poe is like another thing about bad DMs or that or like the stereotype of them is like they're mechanics driven rather than like story driven they're like sticklers about rules they're very particular about the ways of play and want you to play the game in a certain way because that's how the rules outline them and like the thing is like the core rules are fine, but like mm-hmm. ultimately like you are not playing an interesting game. You're literally just going from like block to block. And it's like you found four dollars and you can spend these four dollars on tokens to <laughs> do something right. to your deck. And it's just that the way that like rewards are doled out to you is less interesting and more mechanical. Instead of like something being random or surprising or like a clutch as it would be in a lessy circumstance. You know exactly what you have because you spent the tokens that you're supposed to spend on the token store that you can go in one place. It's a less guy, it's just like a mo, it's the most uh, sterile kind of way of playing a game that you can play, but it's communicating this to you through still a decent card game. And also you, the narrative is compelling in the sense of like, what the fuck, I gotta beat this po guy that you are compelled to finish even though he's such a fucking asshole. <laughs>
1: It's a much more linear section of the game, which is, I mean, by design, we're we're we've we're no longer pretending that this is a roguelike deck builder. We're showing this is a deck builder, but like we are playing through a linear narrative here. But it also, I think that it it keeps people engaged by doing more metatextual things with the boss fights in the section. I think that the boss is in this. I don't like the card game as much as I like it in act one or two. Right. But the boss fights are incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have one that deals with using actual files on your computer to play things. One fight, uh, one fight connects to your steam user, uh, your, your steam friends. Um, I got killed, uh, in one boss fight by Jay, who you had on for your, uh, the, the outer wilds episode. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a friend of my, my boss killed me a different attempt that I played. Um, there's a really cool section with a photographer where you get to photograph the board state that you can revert to at any time Mm -hmm. the the boss fights in this section are really cool and and i think that they do a, a lot of lifting to carry you through to the very small act four in the end of the game through making those interesting boss fights now that you're in a more linear path
0: yeah, those boss fights are nuts. And uh, the, the PS5 version of the game does something simple. Like, you're using, like, your PlayStation friends and doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, the, I guess, I don't know if, like, does, does the game, like, actually access your real files?
1: So, it does. Uh, and I don't remember if the game actually does delete. I think the game does not actually delete your files. if right. you Because uh, at some point, you can give it your oldest, most precious file. And then it'll say, great. I've made a card out of it. If the card dies, I'll delete this file. I believe that what happens is if that card dies, uh, it generates a readme text in that file location that says, hey, we're not going to actually delete your file. You probably should, since we told you we would. It's on you (laughs) if you want to delete it, but
0: you did say that you would. Yeah. Like the the, the way they do that in uh, the PlayStation 5 version is like, obviously Mm -hmm. they don't have that so they just like create fake files and a fake thing that you can select which is a compromise but like the fact that they use refi- real files in the computer version of the game's like i should have played that one that's so
1: cool i i was streaming it and i was just like
0: oh shit y'all are finding
1: out what the new podcast episode coming out is because that's the last file directory i opened on my computer good to know uh <laughs> we'll pick the first episode of argonauts that's my oldest file that i that's very precious playing it playing it again was kind of funny because i'm doing it on the steam deck so it popped up and it was just like hey i know you're in the middle of a boss fight but could you sort through a linux file pathing on the steam deck on valve's proprietary device i'm just like i have no idea what any of these files are or do i hope i don't tell it to delete something system load bearing
0: it's 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 psychomantis shit i love it so much absolutely
1: It's it's incredible
0: yeah, no. So, like, those boss fights are incredible. It's just, like, the, the stuff between... Because, like, okay, uh, here's an example of, like, the ways that this... The the pathing to those bosses is, like, sterile. Like, we already said it's a one-for-one recreation of the, the overworld map in Act 2. So it's, like, I already know this map. I can, like, eyeball where exactly I need to go just by remembering what the map from Act 2 looks like. But also, like, mm-hmm. you could fight the bosses in Act 2 in any order you wanted to. And in this one, you are stuck in a specific order because when you go to... Uh, a boss like there's like some gatekeeper who's like uh, come back when you beat two bosses that's such a boring way of addressing an obstacle with well, the way that pokemon would address linearity where it didn't want you to go someplace mm-hmm. it's like there's a snorlax in this path and you need to get the flute to wake up snorlax which you can't do until like in the game it's like oh you have to beat like a requisite number of gems and then you can come back to this area and do that but it's never like there's never a guy standing there that's like you don't have three gym badges come back when you get three gym badges because that's non-immersive game design he is not remotely interested in like doing the storytelling stuff that like engages you in a game the guy literally just like oh this this bridge will be repaired when you when you beat two bosses (laughs) come back when you beat two bosses (laughs) they yeah they'll do that early
1: on but it's more like Hey, you don't have a single gym badge yet. Go beat Brock. You're too baby brain to come and fight through this next area. Like, but mm-hmm. even then it's just like, Hey, you said you're part of the league, right? There's your guy. Prove it.
0: Yeah. Like they, they will have like, there's some like stupid gating and Pokemon overall, but like I'm saying, like, there's a lot of like great mm-hmm. ones too that like really, and, no, absolutely. Like, but Poe as like a DM is just like doing the most literal, like you haven't beat two bosses yet. Come back, come back when you beat two bosses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great in a shitty way. It's great. <laughs> hmm Did you want to talk about like the ending at all? Or did you just want to, I don't know.
1: I think the ending of this game is incredible. I, yeah. I, I don't want to, I know we've pulled off the spoiler curtain, but I also don't want to like, if people are like me who just listen to things, even when they're being spoiled for things, I don't, there's a part of me that doesn't want to talk too deeply about it, but I love where the, in-game stuff goes in act four if you want to call it that and as we get to the ending i i love the scenes that play out and the way that it it works out i think that the very ending in the out of game stuff kind of sucks but it's fine it's how it's how you needed to end the game i think
0: (laughs) here's okay i think i have a way of let's let me be a better DM than blue most like literally let's talk about the story from beginning until end. Here's the way I'll do it. Let's talk about the, the issues <laughs> with this game because I think like the way that we can talk, I think the best way to like talk about what this game does well is to try and address the central criticisms that people have of it. So like, what do you wish this game did better?
1: Hmm. The, the biggest thing for me is that I feel like the game is doing a really cool job of being a we, we're doing I, I I said it before but and I mean it we're doing House of Leaves in a video game. Yeah. Kind of like something like uh what is it, myhouse.map, the, the Doom game that came out this year, you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: Kind of like that where they're they're saying we're gonna we're gonna use a video game as a way to talk about it, as a way to explore this kind of liminal space style horror but also Digging into a more eldritch, deep, unknown horror through things like old data seeping its way into like old data from a floppy disk that should not have been there when a game was printed on it is infecting a video game and causing it to turn on itself in a way that is fascinating and interesting. And I love that. The stuff inside of the game is really cool with that. I think that the FMV sections and the stuff outside of the game is kind of just...
0: Baby's first creepypasta retelling of Ben Drowned. Kind of. So that's that's generally where I land on it. The actual stuff within the game is really incredible. But I do think like, I think the FMV stuff is like a means to an end as like a connective tissue. Mm -hmm. Like I think it's really cool in presentation in the sense where it's like the way that you are able to like click the files and watch these things and fast forward and rewind them. It doesn't matter because like, there's no like additional bonus to fast forwarding or doing any of that. But like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, you know, I think he has like a Mullins and the people who also worked on this game had an idea of like what this stuff was going to work out. But, um, the acting in these sequences aren't good. Uh, and I don't like saying that because it feels very mean because I love mm-hmm. everything else about this game. And I don't think necessarily it's an actor problem. And I also think the bigger issue is the limited resources that Mullins and crew had developing this game in a game rant the game rant interview i mentioned earlier uh in the introduction of the game the interviewer asked daniel mullins what challenges he faced as he was working on the game and he said quote i think a big one was putting video in the game live action video and having to be a director for real actors i'd never really done that in a serious capacity i think it was trial by fire and i could have done a better job as a director forgetting to bring props and stuff just being a total amateur so that was hard, end quote. By his own admission, he thinks that that was like the kind of stuff that he fumbled. And I, I agree. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I wish I disagreed. I don't think the way that the, the the stilted acting works is in service of like a traditional horror in a way where like the campiness and the the stilted acting kind of works in favor of it, like in a sleepaway camp or something.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the acting works really well is I buy the guy as a guy with, this This sounds like such an insult, I buy the guy as a guy with a card opening YouTube channel um, but I don't buy him as the guy behind the camera trying to figure out what's up with this uh, floppy disc that he found.
0: Right. The game is asking a lot of the actors in these sequences to sort of convey the real world consequences of the story Uh, but I think ultimately the video game is just a better vessel about that but you need somebody to be the conduit through which this video game is fighting itself. So Carter is again a means to an end, but yeah, the ending fundamentally isn't very interesting. It does sort of—I wouldn't say it sours my experience at all, but it is just kind of like, oh man, I wish you, I wish you had more resources so you could have like really done more instead of just like use like a, a handheld camcorder to watch a guy get killed by by a by a corpo with a shotgun, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> The, the the most literal thing that happens in this game that's otherwise very considered in how it's telling its story.
1: Yeah, this is an unfair comparison when it comes to scope. But like, did this come out the same year as Immortality
0: did? Um. Oh my goodness. Hold on one second.
1: Immortality is it's it's within a similar range. And Immortality is a game that is so focused on like Immortality as a video game is also three movies and all of their bonus features and deleted scenes, you know?
0: Yeah, Immortality was a few months later.
1: A few months later, okay. Um, and obviously, that is step one, the main draw of Immortality and how that works. But as a, as a similar, using FMV in a, in a game to display a narrative and go forward with it, there's a lot extra that goes into video production that I think gets taken for granted because video production is a thing that, I can sit here in my basement and stream myself live to the internet. That takes on a whole other level if I'm trying to put together scripted scenes where I'm trying to act, carry a story forward, and also deliver lines and move things forward while telling a story for a video game as well. And I think that it sounds like Mullins also ran into that same issue of the scope on this is much bigger than I expected to, even though it's such a small sliver of the game that it doesn't quite... It it never quite sticks the landing because we give it the level of care that we think it does based on the small slice that it is within our actual video game
0: yeah no i think this game is incredibly like i think this game is like so smart about like what games are as like an entertainment vessel and also like a way to really tell impactful and meaningful stories and fmv is a dip into another genre uh, or a different medium outside of video games so like the challenges that that bring about are not fundamentally Unique to video games, and that doesn't water down its message at all. It's just like it's an interesting way that, it, like, it's almost in service of like the how good this is at being video games. That the part that fundamentally is weak is the thing that is the least video game about it, uh, the least distinct yeah, to video games, at least. Yeah, I'm not saying fmvs are less than any other video game. I'm just saying like the thing that is least specific to video games, I guess, is a way of saying. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that, that is like a weakness that is it's like a like a weakness that somehow underlines the strengths of what this is saying about stories and yeah yeah I, again i feel bad critiquing it just because like I, he was trying it's just like this game got so, this game's so good and the game got so popular that it sticks out in a way that like it, it's like if a like a movie that like almost becomes too popular
1: <laughs> yeah and i i i i also i don't know i don't think the guys bad. I just don't no. think that he's I don't think he's given a lot of good direction and I don't think that I don't think that the writing that he has lends itself well to trying to carry this kind of narrative and be the connecting tissue that it needs to be.
0: Yeah, no, like by Mullen's own admission he's never really done serious directing before for acting. And he never really like rose ch- so I wouldn't be surprised if he was just like I'm doing this take because this is the take that gets us to the next take and then from there, we can do this. It's, it's a, it, was a, it would be a difficult challenge for an actor of any kind to do this and to do it well. So it's not like mm-hmm. when I say like the acting isn't great, That's if you've ever acted before, it's a symbiotic relationship between the director and giving the director what they want. And that doesn't necessarily gel with what you're able to do as a performer. You're ultimately working in service of something. So if I'm not saying X is a bad actor so much. It's just like the acting isn't great. Absolved, you're absolved.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I a hundred percent feel you.
0: Yeah. Everyone is free of sin. <laughs> absolved, <laughs> absolved, you're all absolved. Everybody's free of sin. <laughs> yeah. Uh speaking to another one of the the other thing is like the other things that people would say are flaws about this game are kind of conscious decisions that do work in service of the story, such as like, uh, oh, if somebody says like, oh, the game's too easy or the game is not balanced, yeah. <laughs> because the game wants you to win you have mm-hmm. you have to beat the game and if you made like a perfectly balanced card game it would be very difficult for newcomers to make meaningful progression
1: yeah i i i got very lucky uh the when i was playing it before from what i can tell because i i played inscription when it, when it first came out and then i uh i streamed like the first half of the game essentially and then i logged off And I immediately went to Twitch and started watching other people play it because I wanted to see their reaction to the big end of Act 1 twist uh, because it was such a cool thing to me. And what I quickly realized is that I got very lucky because I did uh, like a first run that I lost, and then a second run that I lost, and then a third run where through the things you can do outside of the uh, the the card game through the, the escape the cabin segments, I was able to get all of the um like I got the film canister, I got the uh everything that I needed to progress the game to the end in my third playthrough, which is the first time that you're able to win. Before then, if you get too far, the game does a hard stop and sends you like Leshy drops eight grizzly bears with flying and fly blocking. So just like, you are not progressing past a certain point if you're too early into the game. I was able to beat the roguelike deck building section at the first possible moment. And so it felt really natural to progress on and go to act two from there. And what I saw in a lot of other playthroughs was just like a lot of struggle to figure out exactly where the puzzles needed to line up. A lot of people that like got the wolf, but not the the knife or things like that. And so, you had to go through a bunch of extra playthroughs to get through it. And I think that part of that was also being too good at the game, where you're just like, well, I'm progressing really well and really far every time. I haven't had to engage with the other stuff because I know how card games work. I have a thousand hours in Slay the Spire. And so when this card game is a little more simplistic, it really feels like I'm struggling here. I understand where that can trip people up, where it's like, this game's too easy. How come I haven't won yet? And it's like, we haven't had to rely on the crutches that are what you need to get to act to.
0: Yeah. There's another thing where it's like, the game is fun. So it's like, losing isn't the worst thing in the world because you get to mm-hmm. keep playing Leshy's game. So it's almost like a like self-perpetuating failure because like you're not really too concerned where it's like, well, I don't feel like I need to use like the stuff around me to make progression, but it's necessary for a story point to do so. So I can see where people struggle to fight against it but it is almost another thing that's in its favor that the game is so compelling that i don't know like the the wall that you hit is like i'm having fun <laughs> i'm not I'm not really doing my best to like s- explain as well but you know what i mean right
1: no i feel you this is me getting onto my artsy fartsy bullshit but it kind of bugs me that they ended up releasing casey's mod the dlc that lets you just play act one like it's a roguelike and just continue to do the deck like the roguelike deck building stuff like is mm-hmm. an endless game. Like it is a slay the spire. Cause I'm just like that, that misses the whole point.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're supposed
1: to beat it and move on to the real
0: inscription. I understand how it's defeating, but I'm glad that the people who want just a fun mm-hmm. card game to play have it. So it's like, it's, it's not as like damaging as like when an action film that's like about how violence is bad, like has like, it's not the starship trooper sequel just problem. The
1: sickest gunfights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like it's, like you know, at least it's not that fundamentally breaking. But uh, I, I I can understand like the f- frustration where it's like it is running counter to the the the, the grand point of it. But at, you know, at the end of the day, you made the game too fun, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a good problem to have.
0: Yeah, uh, speaking to this a little bit, another challenge that Mullins described was the difficulty when developing this game. Quote: I would have some people telling me they would beat the bad guy in the cabin in twenty hours. And it's amazing they even persisted that long because it was so hard and they were so frustrated. Some people would tell me they'd breeze through it in two hours. So I had to try and find ways to modulate that so people who find it too easy take a bit longer and get more roadblocks. And people who find it too hard can eventually overcome it. Uh, I don't know if I fully succeeded in the end there. There are people who give it a thumbs down because they find it too easy. That was a big challenge right up to the end. So he is a guy who's very upfront about the, the 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 struggles as a developer that he had developing a game, uh, and I, I I admire that being upfront. But I do think that this one mm-hmm. is a little bit being too hard on himself because I do think the end product does kind of balance itself in a way that I found to be the right amount of time to play a video game like this. I did not feel like this game was taking too long, and I did also feel like it was I, my personal experience at least was this was a just long enough game. I hope other people got that.
1: Yeah, I I was a little frustrated on my this playthrough mostly because i was playing on a deadline and i played it on such a quick and easy way last time that i kept losing here and i was just like oh come on i should be in act two by now uh but that's kind of its own thing
0: <laughs> right yeah and the game does give the player so many resources for people mm-hmm. who are struggling to actually progress to get to the the boss at the end of a uh, act one because not only does it does he give you like these uh consumables and not only can you find the things in the cabin that make it easier and not only do you get the 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 corpses of the failures before you but and this is not in the spirit of the game i understand that but i did find that the autosave is very generous where it's like oh man you're about to lose to the fishmonger you can quit really quickly and the game will load the save right before the fishmonger (laughs) I I I played the game honestly, but I did find that that was something that I could do a couple times, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I, I I tested it. You know what I mean? Like you can do it sure. right up. You can do it right up to like when you're about to fight Leshy, even. So people who feel like they have a really good groove and really just want to progress are able to like load the save and not have to start the the map from level one and go all the way to Leshy again and fight the the cool. mini bosses leading up to it. So the game gives them so much for the people who just want to keep going.
1: Well, good. I, I never thought to try quitting out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I like the game does give you a visible indicator when the game is autosaving, saving. And like, mm-hmm. I, I was noticing like it was doing that like after you fully lose. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was testing it. And it was like, is this going to like put me back to one if I quit in the middle of a game and I feel like it's going to go bad and it just let me do the battle all over again. And I was like, Oh, that seems like it's an exploitable thing. And then as I played later in the game, I was like, oh, I think you're doing that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think ultimately the the difficulty balancing is good, where it's kind of one of those, like, for the people who do have the get good mindset, like, I just have to be better at the game. It, it allows for that. But for the people who do want to get there, there's so much there for them to have a, an easier time. Mm hmm last episode when I was talking about visual novels, I was talking about how it's a good formula for people who have disabilities and have mobility issues and aren't able to play a game with uh, the same reactive reflexes as somebody who is traditionally able-bodied or perceived as able-bodied in the society that we currently have. And I think this is another game that's very, if you have you know mobility issues, I think this is a game that you probably would not struggle with the same way you would struggle with a traditional action video game i do think that this game is a like you know speaking to like the the various like difficulties that this game has i do also think like the actual act of playing the game is inviting for people who have mobility issues
1: i i would agree with that i would uh i would disagree with that on the steam deck but that's about it just because it's such a the form the factor deck, of the steam deck <laughs> it's it's a form factor of the steam deck kind of thing but i but I i do agree with you yeah
0: yeah I'm trying to like make an observation of games that I call like one finger or two button games or things like that. Like how many fingers do I really need to use to get a lot out of it? And like Phoenix Wright in this game, I think is a game that you would only really need like one button press at a time without it being a, you know, a detriment to your experience.
1: The steam deck is weird because it has a, like a thumb trackpad, and the game wants you to use that to emulate clicking and dragging and dropping a card into place on the table and so you get this weird experience of having to like shove your thumb to drag and drop something as if you're like using the little like touch pad on the top of a ps5 controller
0: oh like because you do not have to do any of that with the ps5 duels like that you don't have to use the touch screen at all like i was just able to press the buttons normally like the vibration and the glowing lights that the dual sense is doing when you're mm-hmm. interacting with these features that's all there but I did not have to like pretend that I was using a mouse and keyboard at any point. Yeah.
1: It's, it's weird on the steam deck. So don't, don't play it on the steam deck. That's my, that's my big asterisk for this episode.
0: All right. We'll we'll call we We can count that as a flaw for the game too. The steam deck has some problems. (laughs) Yeah. Turns out. So what impact would you say that this game made on you overall? I
1: love it. It sounds stupid to say it like this. I love a good story. I love a good meta narrative. I love thinking about the act of game design and the ways that you have to design things for a player to experience. And this game is such a cool example of taking one of my favorite, uh, not genres, mediums of play, card games, taking those lessons that I've learned playing Magic the Gathering and being a dungeon master for D and D and trying to tell stories. And it really does a great job of intertwining those together through gameplay in a way that like, it really inspires me. I don't know that like I'm walking away from this game, having learned something about myself or having any real profound changes, but it, it this game hits me in that way that like watching your new favorite movie hits you as you do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Sometimes you just play a game that's so good. It reminds you that video games are worth it. Even when the industry feels like it's crumbling and I, I bounce off of most games I play. This game hit me in a way that was like, hell yeah, there's so much value out in indies. You cannot overstate how good indie game design is yeah I, I have nothing but praise to sing for this game even as we slander the Lucky Carter I, I think
0: that this game's incredible and I it, it just hits me knowing that there is quality out there <laughs> for what it's worth I think we were generous to the Lucky Carter I think i try to give him as much grace as possible it's just like cause okay look Like everything you said is correct and like well put. This is one of those like, man, video games are so good type of video games. It's just like everything I love about video games or at least most everything I love about video games is here. The unique specificities that make this a compelling and engaging and interactive Mm -hmm. medium is all here. And it's very smart about that in a sense where it's like, it's self critiquing about like video games and stories and card games. But not mm-hmm. in a way that's like, this is something that sucks. It's saying that in a way where it's like, I love this stuff so much, and I have such strong convictions and opinions about it. And I want to see how you guys feel about it too. Right. It is a manifesto in a compelling package. You can feel the passion. It's it's just really well told in what it's doing. Like it's saying like, I really am frustrated when games are like this or in like interactive stories like this when there is so much that these things could do. And if you're having a struggle with that, yeah, that's what I'm struggling with all the time when I'm playing like these less, <laughs> like this is a guy who loves Magic the Gathering so much and clearly is also struggling like with, like the, the whole like thing where there's like four scribes is very much like the faction infighting in, you know, the the ways that people play card games. When you Like you're talking like about the, the archetypes of players in the card game mm-hmm. worlds, like the ways that these people play card games. And how they almost like make themselves into like opposing and warring factions. And then how like the ultimate villain of this game is basically the, the producer of the card game themselves. That's basically destroying mm-hmm. this thing that people love. Because, yeah, we, we say like Poe is like the villain in terms of like within the game, he's the antagonist and like trying to restrict the ways that you can play this game and forcing you to play this game in the most like unimaginative way possible. But when you are taking the game in holistically and taking in the FMV elements and the ARG that I did not play or engage with because I kind of wanted things to be left a mystery, like it's ultimately the it's, corporation. It's better that way. Yeah, the 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 people who publish or produce the the card game that was lovingly made, driving a woman to madness and her dying, and then like the remnants of this being this game that is representative of all like the sin within this company and then like when somebody finds it and digs it up and tries to report it they kill the guy the broad strokes of that story are actually very well told it's just like the presentation of it could have been a little bit better and that's why i'm not trying to market against it because it is mm-hmm. making great points about like yeah there's infighting but ultimately like the greater threat happens to also be the thing that gave us so much joy and love and i don't there's just so much there's just so much good there's just so much good stuff on its mind. And I love the way it's presented so much.
1: Yeah. You, you couldn't make the inscription movie, you know, you couldn't do the novelization of inscription. Mm -hmm. It's such a, a video game as video game that like, it reminds me a lot of something like undertale where when it is at its best, it is engaging with the medium of itself and looking at the way that we interact with the thing that it is in a way that's really compelling. And it's even more compelling because it's about card games to me.
0: (laughs) yeah it's adaptation proof which is the most like the highest praise i can heap on anything like the way that house of leaves is adaptation proof the only person Mm -hmm. who's able to like make a a screenplay for it was the author of house of leaves and the pilot was so like off-putting that nobody wanted to pick it up and make it into a tv (laughs) show
1: (laughs) i forgot about that yeah (laughs) yeah the
0: pilot of house of leaves is also worth reading guys
1: yeah absolutely
0: but no like it's it's just great and i do think that like the the future of like metafictional storytelling is through the interactive medium of video games and i do have a few recommendations that we uh can go to in a minute here but before we do that i do want to ask you uh would you say that this game has influenced your taste in media that you've consumed in the year since you've played it or so has it like given you a vocabulary in terms of like what you intend to seek out in the future
1: i think so i think that this game it's firing on all cylinders in a way that it, it's nice to get reminded that things can fire on all cylinders, you know? And that like, when I don't like something, sometimes you just kind of paper over and go like, yeah, they're trying. This one's knocking it out of the park. And I think that that really leads and shapes taste as I look forward. It, it makes me look at games that I'm, I'm not enjoying as I play through long extended play times. And I go, boy, I wish this was just a, focused linear conversation a linear narrative and a a conversation with itself instead of whatever i'm doing in loop hero
0: (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah no i get it i think man this is like one of those games that like makes me want better for the medium of video games and i'm not saying that in a way like fuck the rest of the industry i'd like you know obviously again my big issue is the way that like the bigger companies are trying to like chase trends and not the creators of people who are trying their best to work within a broken system because like look this game came out two years ago during one of the most cynical times to produce art and it's mm-hmm. so coherent about what it's trying to say the thing that frustrates me again because this is a pretty adaptation proof video game is like i read about fans of the game who i'm sure they have good intentions want to try and create a real life version of this card game and that feels impossible because one there's no iteration of this game as it's presented that is fundamentally balanced. The game right. goes out of its way to not be balanced because it's trying to use card games to tell a story. Even Yu-Gi-Oh an, an anime never followed the the traditional rules of what how Yu-Gi-Oh is played because it's just not conducive to pacing and mm-hmm. storytelling. Like they have to modify the rules to to tell like whatever story that Yu-Gi-Oh anime is trying to tell. Screw the rules, I have money! And to that point, you can't adapt Inscription into a playable video game without like sacrificing some of what the game is trying to tell. And isn't that just inevitably what a game about sacrifice is going to lead to?
1: Yeah, I know that at one of our, one of our charity streams with Moonshot, we did a, a live-action Inscription, like Twitch Plays Inscription-style game. And I think that is as close as you can get. And even that was just like, this is a one and done thing. Cause we can't run this back. We can never do this again. <laughs> inscription lives forever within itself, which is also the point of inscription.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Video games are so good. Video games rule, man. But as singular as this game is, it still did remind me of some other stuff, which will bring us to the recommendation section of this episode. Uh, what would you recommend to listeners based on today's discussion? And keep in mind, you do not necessarily have to be limited limited to the medium of video games.
1: I mean, I would definitely say check out if you like inscription and you haven't checked out House of Leaves, by all means you should go check out House of Leaves. Yeah. That is that is just directly inspiring to this. Same with things like Ben Drowned that the old ARG and web Creepy pasta about a haunted video game. I don't know that that necessarily holds up, holds up, but it is foundational. So <laughs> I mm-hmm. recommend checking that out. That, and I would recommend trying out a card game. Personally, I think Magic's really good. I think that the Digimon trading card game is good. I know that there are cool trading card games out there, like Flesh and Blood, like Weiss Schwartz. I think still exists. Uh, and then, you know, even with all the franchised ones like One Piece or D- D- Digimon or Pokemon or one of the cool things that trading card games do that you can't get in a video game like this necessarily is playing in paper and interacting with other people is just an incredible way to meet people and grow your mind as a gamer, which sounds like the most cynical way of putting that. but. I, I don't think I would be the person I am today if it weren't for paper trading card games and meeting people through that and getting competitive in that way. And I would recommend if that is if you want something to do on a Thursday night, figuring out what games being played and seeing if it's for you is a
0: really cool way to get out of the house. Yeah. Awesome recommendations. I have a couple of recommendations of my own one video game, one movie and one album. So Hmm. I want to make a timely recommendation. It's timely for a lot of reasons. Uh, The conversation about AI and information control hits harder than it ever has. The game is getting a re-release this month. It's Metal Gear Solid 2, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which is probably my favorite work of metafiction ever. (laughs) Like, this is what I was trying to allude to when I was saying, like, I think video games may be the best medium for these kinds of, like, stories because of the way that, like, so many of these stories try to make the audience a participant in them. And video games just have that built in where you, the player, are literally facilitating the sequence of events that's happening. In in Inscription, that's the case. And in Metal Gear Solid 2, it is absolutely the case. Uh, So it's timely because we just spent an entire episode talking about metafiction it's timely because in real life, we're still having conversations about the things that this game is interacting with, information control and AI, like I mentioned before. This game is going to be re-released in, in October as part of the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection. So this game, which is currently unavailable in any legal form, is becoming available again in on most playable devices. And that's exciting, and I hope as many people play it, especially since I'll be covering the game in November, uh, hopefully. Uh, nice. it's, again, possibly the best work of metafiction ever made, both in how well told the story is and how it only becomes more true as time goes on. Check it out when it comes out if you haven't already. Truly one of the best things ever made. Mm-hmm. Le- moving away from just meta stuff and engaging with this game more um, literally, because even outside of what this game is, As a narrative and the story it's trying to tell, I do think there's just so much value to the game in terms of its presentation and aesthetic. This is a game about playing a game against God. And this is an opportunity to recommend one of my all-time favorite films, The Seventh Seal, uh, directed by Ingmar Bergman, which is in the pop-cultural understanding of playing a game against death for your life. That's where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And people seem to regard black and white foreign films as like this inaccessible thing. And I do not think that is the case with Ingmar Bergman, especially The Seventh Seal. The Seventh Seal is funny. The Seventh Seal is a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is like straightforwardly an enjoyable movie that just also hits really hard And when it has those big moments that approach like existentialism and the various themes that this game is trying. I'm not trying to say too much about the movie, but it's 96 mm-hmm. minutes long Just because it's foreign and in black and white doesn't mean it's like this big barrier of entry. It is a fantastic film. Everybody should watch it. It's on HBO Max. like It's very accessible, too, in terms of how you can find this film and watch it. Highly recommend it. One of my favorite stories of all time. I just love the image of literally playing a game of chess against death. And Mm -hmm. I think it it pairs well with this game. Uh, And I think it's a very spooky-adjacent watch. It's not horror at all, but it just... Death is literally there. <laughs> and my last recommendation, this one's a little sweaty, but it is spooky season, so I do think it is at least timely. Uh, one of my favorite music projects ever is Dead Man's Bones, which is a goth rock music album, which sounds like a horror film. It definitely has like a lot of spooky songs, some fun, some with like actual jump scares within the music. It runs the gamut. Some are silly, some are fun, some are goofy, some are scary. And one of the musicians behind this project is CinemaZone Ryan Gosling. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. He took a hiatus from acting for about a year and a half in the late 2000s, and it turns out while he was doing that hiatus, he was just part of a goth rock band called Dead Man's Bones where he called himself Baby Goose. He formed this band because he and the other person behind this duo really loved the haunted mansion ride in Disney world. And they both just had like this child <laughs> obsession with ghosts and spirits and stuff. So they were just literally like just talking about ghouls and goblins and Disney world rides while making this album with a children's chorus that I guess flea put together flea from Red hot chili peppers. <laughs> um, okay. So there's just like a lot of weird moving parts up. Uh, the actual rec- recordings were done in, i think one or two takes at most so if it sounds messy it's intentional they didn't want to rehearse it too much so it sounded more added to like the atmosphere of like this being sort of like an artifact uh i love this record so much i own it on vinyl if you haven't listened to dead man's bones absolutely listen to dead man's bones it's just one album that was ever released by this band
1: <laughs> sounds great
0: yeah so those are all the recommendations i have you don't have anything else to add
1: uh the other ones that came to mind um as we were talking about things that are interactive uh, and I wanted to stay more analog still. Uh, but I'd recommend um, just like getting out and playing a card game. Go check out an escape room. If you if you want a, a cool way of engaging in play in the real world, There are uh, there's a really good website whose name I am blanking on at the moment where you can find good ones near you. And I don't know, if you like inscription, get out in the world and do it yourself, except without a guy trying to strangle you for being bad at cards. that's really it's i i know that i'm these are very less specific uh recommendations but they are the things in your backyard and i i am dangerously close to saying my recommendation is to go touch grass but uh (laughs) i would say go go lock grass in
0: a room and then try to find it grass is what Leshy's made of don't touch all of it (laughs) oh
1: yeah actually never mind we need to touch less grass
0: yeah all right so that's that's inscription uh i really glad i got to talk about this with you so thank you so much for making the time to come on and talk about such a uniquely great game andrew this is a super fun conversation as evidenced by how long we spent talking to each other (laughs) i'll finally let you go but before you leave please promote the hell out of yourself
1: yeah uh if you want to hear more of me somehow uh you can do so Uh, And you know what? I'll do a shameless plug. We did an episode about the Inscription ARG. If you want to find us over on Argonauts, Uh, I'm the co-host of a show that is about online alternate reality games, which are these kind of online scavenger hunts that uh, are made to promote things like Inscription. I also host a show, uh, the podcast minds there for the grace of Podgo We, where Riley and I pitch podcasts back and forth to each other and try to make comedy out of it. I also stream often, uh, Sundays, my wife and I stream sleepover Sundays where we play, uh, ROM hacks as we gear up for the facing the rest of the week and Thursdays, uh, Riley Hopkins and I are usually playing something, uh, we think we're about to start playing Lamplighters league, a new tactics game coming out. That's like, what if XCOM was the 1920s, uh, but not that XCOM game that did come out. That was not good. That action game, mm-hmm. um, the Bureau, I think it was called that's beside the point uh otherwise you can find me and a bunch of other stuff that a bunch of really great people like Kiefer uh, are involved in over at moonshot pods the moonshot podcast network is a podcast network devoted to making shows that break orbit uh where we do all sorts of podcasts and streams and all sorts of great shows and coming up in next month since it's this is coming out in october yeah november 11th we are doing a big extra live stream uh, 24 hours a bunch of people are going to be on stream and you'll be able to find that at moonshot.mov moonshot.mov follow us and get notifications when we go live with that and all sorts of other stuff
0: awesome Andrew thank you again for coming on my show thank you for introducing me to a great game thank you for having me be a part of your network and thank you so much for listening to this episode of select and start once again I'm your host editor and promoter Kiefer If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Inscription or any other games we discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I'll gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes, as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. That's on patreon.com slash keyfirstcorner. You can find a link to that and the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. The art for this show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at A-V Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y-Robin-O-T-T. And the show's theme song was composed by Mike Petrie. You can check out the links in the description for both of their work, as well as Andrew's. All right, I think that's it. Total misplay. <music> Yeah, no, uh, shopper from Kroger. It's fine. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, if I don't edit this out, I'm sorry. Uh, I, you, you can't arrest me because I'm <laughs> God. <laughs> uh,